0: And welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Sci War, Conspiratainment, and The Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at Visefview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-V-V-I-E-W, all one word.blogspot.com. And to get a copy of that book and other works at the farm's official store, which is at the farm podcast, all one word, the And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content content the upper tier you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly zoom party meetings my dispatches from my various journeys across the united states and all the weird hot spots that i hit up state of the unions where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world and so much more it's a lot of content folks so please consider checking that out Okay, today's guest is making his second appearance on the farm. He is a California-based musician, psychotherapist, and the co-creator of Music-Centered Psychedelic Integration, a new way of working with psychedelic experiences that uses more music at all phases of the psychedelic treatment. He also has a long-standing interest in many of my favorite subjects, namely entheogens, the supernatural, occultism, and rock and roll. Presently, he's involved in providing private practice psychedelic therapy and co owns a ketamine clinic. You can boast of such an interesting day job. Folks, I give you guys the great Matt Baldwin. Matt, thank you so much for dropping by, sir. Stephen, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. As many of you are probably aware, I visited California a little over a month ago. I actually got to spend two days with this wonderful gentleman here. It was a great experience. Uh, I have long been intrigued by this place, and the trip only further bolstered my fascination with Cali. And Matt here just happens to be a longtime Californian with a keen knowledge of several of the state's most curious regions. And he's graciously agreed to come and show the fruits of his explorations into the Monterey area and some of the surrounding regions there. We're going to consider the history of select places in addition to the high strangeness be it ufos hauntings murders cults or esoteric beliefs it's going to be quite an outing and we're going to cover a part of the state that i'm not especially familiar with and which i get the impression a lot of people have not looked as closely into as it probably warrants so on that note let us start the show Right, our first region up for consideration is Pacific Grove. This is where you're from, Matt. So you've got a lot of time dedicated in this area. So I'm guessing you have a lot to unravel for us about it. So let's start off by getting into a bit of where exactly it's located in Cali for those of us who are not especially familiar with the state's geography and its, you know, kind of vanilla history, if you will.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll start with some history and then I'll get on to the stories, you know, many of which as i'm a native of this area um, i'll probably be the only person who can really talk about this kind of stuff in detail based on my direct contact with people involved in the stories and phenomena um, so i've done a fair amount of research involving uh, published sources of information but i'm going to do my best to weave those together uh to support and inform the information that i got from firsthand, anecdotal sources so yeah i'm going to start we're, we're talking about a d- number of regions you know I, i'm in la right now it's where i live in south pasadena um so so what we're talking about uh viewed from LA is is considered Northern California but it's really uh actually the Central Coast so this is really these are areas that I have a lot of firsthand familiarity with in Monterey County and starting with Pacific Grove so um it's it's where I grew up um it's the center of this project and we're, we're going to fan out from there so this is the, the, the site of my childhood. Um, I was born and raised there near a, a beach called the Silomar Beach. And this is at the very tip of the Monterey Peninsula. It's uh, surrounded by water, you know, pretty much on three sides. So it seems like the ocean is sort of hanging in the background of most of my childhood memories. And, um, you know, it's, the, it's uh, on the opposite end of the, the crescent-shaped Monterey Bay from Santa Cruz. And it's also about which is about an hour to the north by car and then 45 minutes uh, south of that is Big Sur. And to the east is Salinas, the, the county seat, which, you know, figures prominently in the Steinbe- Steinbeck mythos. And that's also where my mother was born. It's a s- scrappy little farming town that most people tend to talk trash about. But, you know, don't do that in front of my mother because um, she will uh, fire back. Um so the landscape of the area, Pacific Grove specifically, and of the peninsula is, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily beautiful place. And, um, you know, there's a, a unique uh, type of flora there. There's Monterey Pines. There's a specific uh, specific types of coastal cypresses. There's a sort of ever-present mist hanging in the air. And then there's the rocky coastline. Um, you know, I, I think about this in terms of, you uh, concepts that your your listeners should be familiar with like mystical toponymy or uh you know paul weston's ideas of landscape tarot you know that that it, it can really feel like there's some kind of information encoded in the uh in, in the actual sense of in the actual place so um you know it's 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 a it's a place that people go and they tend to have it tends to make a profound impact on them uh it, it's not a place you forget um, lies right alongside the Monterey Bay Area Marine Sanctuary, which is a ho- home to an extraordinary range of sea life. And uh, at nighttime, you can see the squid boats out on the bay, you know, with their eerie green lights moving in the fog. So, uh, the, the original uh, the the original residents of this area were the Aloni uh, Indians, and they existed in this area, you know, from time immemorial. Uh, I think they're supposedly one of the Considered one of the oldest Native American groups in North America. There's bones and archaeological uh, finds from, they think, 13,000 years ago. Um, And the Ohlone were a larger group of tribes, including the the Esalen and the Rumson, among others. They all shared certain customs and linguistic characteristics. They also shared, to some extent, this religion called the Kuksu religion, which uh, involved a A male initiatory secret society that focused around ritual dances in underground meeting rooms. And this civilization was essentially completely wiped out uh, upon contact with, uh, you know, first contact with the Europeans. Some people remain, some tribal organizations remain, but very little physical evidence of their civilization uh, exists. So there are some remains though, you know, and and you could find them. You know, if if you walk around and keep your eye, uh, eyes open. There there are locally uh near where I grew up grinding stones where I believe they were probably milling uh acorns to make flour. Um mm-hmm. there are also shell mounds which uh, I I the according to my understanding they there were um uh, they did serve a purpose spiritually. I think oftentimes they buried dead in uh, and maybe dead children in shell mounds. That's what I've heard. Um, and then there's also just extensive shell deposits along the shoreline. If you walk along the shores of Pacific Grove, uh, out near Point Pinos, uh, sort of where the, the side of the, the, the cliffs go down to the ocean, in the dirt, you can just see this strata, these layers of dirt. And embedded in it are just tons and tons of uh, b- broken abalone shells, which are the sort of the remains of uh, all of the the uh, gathering that they would do from the ocean. And then there's occasional artifacts um, that people find, you know, uh, arrowheads. Um, my grandfather was a school teacher in the 1930s um, in San Benito County, east of here, and his students, uh, who were all farmers, local farmers' children in the area, would bring him. Uh, they would bring him artifacts of different uh, types. Uh, I think th- there's there's some arrowheads. There's a thing, a religious implement called a charm stone that he had, and he also had a skull uh, that I think he named Lulu. Uh, kind of kind of a, a morbid thing that he did. That my grandmother really hated. He kept it in his in his study, and uh, when he went off to fight in World War II, he came back and it was not there anymore. He he thinks that she threw it away or buried it. You know, if that was the kind of thing that was to come down to me, I would really try to make sure to get it back to to the uh the native group in the area where it came from just cuz it seems like a heavy karmic thing to be owning human human remains. Um but that didn't happen unfortunately. So that that was out in the uh you know Piceñas or maybe Dos Palos area. So more modern history, uh the, the area belonged to Mexico for a while and it became part of the US in 1846 um it it, the pacific grove itself uh started as a methodist summer camp around 1876 and you could buy for 50 bucks a, a plot of land and you could put up a tent and you could stay there for a few weeks in the summer to kind of go deep into this methodist spiritual practice so um there's many churches you know i grew up in an episcopal church in the area uh there that i've seen written evidence that there were spiritual group spiritualist groups specifically uh theosophists there was a Theosophist's hall in downtown pacific grove um I, i'm not sure what happened to that you know there were certain parts of downtown pacific grove which burned at different times and it also might have been repurposed into a different uh building um but the chautauqua movement also had a presence and so that seems to be uh, at a time when progressivism was really tethered to you know uh Uh, you know, religious movements, uh, also the Chautauqua movement. So there was a hall downtown where I took, you know, judo lessons as a kid. Um, And it's a seaside town with a special type of, uh, you know, um, a lot of Victorian buildings and and specific types of Victorian buildings that are uh, only found in that area. One is the Vernacular Cottage, which is a, it's a small square building that is uh, essentially a tent frame that has been Sort of walled in to make a house, and these these houses still stand, um, but they're very simple houses, and they're typically very small. Uh, the vernacular cottage. There's also the carpenter Gothic, which is a more co- uh, complex floor plan, irregular shape, steep steep roofs, and then there's some Queen Anne's, you know, the kind of Victorian buildings that have turrets and gables. Um, there's over 1,200 historic homes in a town of 15,000 people. So it's a small town, but it's. Uh, on one side uh there's um Pebble Beach and Carmel and on the other there's Monterey so it's sort of continuous with those areas it doesn't feel small and isolated um so w- one thing that's u- unique about the area is uh that there was a a chinese fishing village um uh t- to the to the east uh, sort of near the, the the border with Monterey from the 1800s um and i don't have the i don't have the the date uh of when it ceased to exist because it was destroyed in a fire I think it was in the early 1900s and um there's a book about it that that I have called Chinese gold and uh it, it gives a whole historical account of that that uh that community and it says that the source of the fire was unknown I mean there's a lot of speculation I don't think it was a popular th- thing you know I think there was a lot of racism and resentment that there was this sort of big community of Chinese people who who worked in the the canneries. So there's often speculation that the fire was set intentionally um, because there was this sort of, it was a big community. There was not, uh, it was not zoned or planned. It didn't have, uh, it didn't have sewage. It didn't have, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, fire hydrants, you know, so there was a, it was considered unsafe in some ways, but I think there was also a racial aspect to uh people's antipathy towards the chinese and and so when the fire started the one thing that has you know it burned completely and they were moved into monterey and to other places um the one thing that has been documented very clearly is that the chinese were prevented from rebuilding uh at that time and from what i understand there is a chinese graveyard that just was left there on the uh on the property of the hopkins marine what is now the hopkins marine station sort of out on this point of land um, so, uh, we used to have this, uh, this sort of ritualized thing that uh, the high school kids would participate in called the Feast of Lanterns, lanterns which is this uh, sort of ritualized, heavily appropriative, uh, Chinese style pageant that took place in boats to, uh, this place called Lover's Point that had a little dock and it, it was very weird a- and, uh, you know, they stopped doing it. You know, maybe in 2017 or 2018, because I think people realized like this is it's not it's not good. Uh, Something something was really untoward. Uh, Something untoward was happening here with the fire and the sort of the expulsion of the Chinese and then a bunch of white people doing this weird uh, ceremony. I I, I, it did feel to me in some way expiatory and and like a kind of mythological uh, screen memory for some kind of dark collective trauma. my my i remember my father building a house for my grandmother nearby uh you know in the 90s and um, i remember the the back hose coming in and clearing the land and uh once they broke ground we realized that it was in an old chinese garbage dump and finding all kinds of pieces of pottery you know blue willow pottery uh old bottles and i my mother still has the head of a little chinese doll um with uh you know asian features and a little hole in the back of its head for a, the, the the cue or the braid so there's definitely a, a kind of a um you know there's some kind of imprint left from that experience and uh it's it's kind of an unsettling one um you know more recent more recently during the 60s and 70s it, you know the area was really overrun by hippies and it was more of an affordable place to live and at the time it was more working class and that was in the process of changing during during my childhood so it's more and more now a kind of elite stronghold but there are certain very old families who remain in this area but homes have become in the course of my life extremely expensive and industry is the uh, sorry tourism is the industry at this point so before that it was canneries and uh canneries in monterey canning fish sardines out of the bay and uh logging to the south in big sur so it had been a countercultural hub at one point um, and it's drawn many interesting artists over the span of its time. I mean, many fascinating authors, artists. I mean, one artist who I love in particular is Charles Rollo Peters, who was called the Prince of Darkness. And he specialized in doing nocturne scenes of local adobes by moonlight with lamps burning in the windows. And it was, I mean, his his paintings, I mean, you can look them up online, but you really ought to see them in purpose or in, in person. Um you know, the, the, the Monterey Museum of Art has a, a really wonderful collection of his paintings. Um, just one of many interesting artistic uh, personalities from this area. It's really interesting about
0: the the uh, shell mounds, um, because I, uh, of course, we had them in Florida from the Tim Walkway uh, it was mm. right next to, what was it? I think it was Turtle Mound in New Smyrna Beach. Uh-huh. But yes, I was not as familiar that they did them um, on the West Coast. I was looking at a few of uh, the pictures. They were definitely a little different than what the Timuaka were doing, but that's uh, certainly a fascinating aspect of uh, the coastline there that I was not aware of. Um, Also, too, if I'm not mistaken, this uh, 17-mile, was it 17-mile drive, I think, uh, starts in what Pacific Grove and goes up to Pebble Beach, right? Uh, right. Those of you listening to this it was I believe it was shown in Vertigo if I'm not mistaken which is uh one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. Um but yeah that's uh that's very interesting because I have sort of some theories that um the locations in that movie were uh carefully chosen by Hitchcock uh for some or other esoteric reasons.
1: Ah. Ah. Okay so the so the house that I grew up in was a house that my dad built down by the beach. Um it it, it, through the, through the, on the Western edge of the property, the, it, it's actually, uh, the old 17 mile drive, which was abandoned goes through the the back end of the property. So if you dig down into the, through the pine duff and the dirt there, you'll actually hit decomposed granite. That was the old hard pack road, uh, the 17 mile drive. It's since been moved east, uh, several blocks from that house. But, uh, you know, so there's a couple different 17 mile drives. There's an abandoned kind of, uh, one that no one sees anymore and then there's the more recent one but i think yeah the one that hitchcock filmed with is is the is the one that currently exists which is not 17 mile drives or 17 miles long anymore
0: fittingly enough i guess
1: yeah yeah
0: um all right do you want to start getting into the high strangeness around pacific grove
1: yeah um that I think to, I'll start with a, a couple different childhood precursors. The first one, I mean, we can't avoid it, is uh, uh, John Steinbeck. You know, um, you know, if you are a child in public school in uh, the Monterey County, I mean, you're going to read John Steinbeck every year. You're going to read The Red Pony of Mice and Men, uh, The Long Valley, uh, D- D- Tortilla Flat, my favorite, and Cannery Row. So, I mean, you're going to read it ad nauseum. And I got to the point where I knew those stories in and out and backwards and forwards. And so there was this incredible sense being so familiar with Steinbeck of growing up in a place where the stories had happened and where they were still happening. Because when I was growing up, there were still many Steinbeckian characters around and people who knew Steinbeck. Like There was uh, uh, this woman named Kalisa who owned a A belly dancing cafe, I mean, real classic bohemian place where I played my first guitar gig ever on Cannery Row. Um, Steinbeck's sons were around, uh, and there were other people who who were still kind of like just barely hanging on from that era. So uh, there was a, a kind of haunted narrative animism to the place. It was like the landscape was alive with stories. And, you know, me and my friends, we all loved Steinbeck. You know, this wasn't. Uh, compulsory re- reading that we hated. So we w- would go down to Cannery Row sometimes in the middle of the night, um, at which point it, it had been mostly developed into a tourist destination. We would try to open ourselves up to presences or look for look for ghosts. Um, you know, I had some friends who even took sleeping bags down there and sort of slept, you know, in the bushes to sort of see what would happen because they knew that it was an important place. This is where Doc Ricketts was killed by the by the the. Uh, train in the middle of the night one time uh and uh and then there's uh something that happened uh you know um in, it happens in the book tortilla flat which is uh they, they talk about the the sort of the the, the the true paisanos in monterey uh you know if you had a pure heart you could go on saint Ant- saint anthony's eve which I, I believe is june 12th up into the mountains of del monte or into the hills of del monte forest you know, this area that we call White Mountain, and uh, you can look for treasure, and that you you carry a cross with you and you look for a blue glow cr- uh, coming up from the ground. And if you, if you see that, you need to pray and then dig for it and that you'll find treasure. I mean, I've actually done this, you know, I did this as a kid because I was so compelled by these stories. So, I mean, this kind of gives you a sense of, uh, you know, how Steinbeck affected me and, and my sense of what was possible and what was possible in a landscape and a, a place. Uh, the other person is Randall Reinstead he uh, is another author and he's an author who lived you know down the street from me he only recently died i would see him walking in the neighborhood you know with a large walking stick and white hair and uh, or he'd be driving around in his uh, light blue willies jeep he was friends with my grandfather we'd walk around the neighborhood we'd run into him and we'd stop and and, and chat and uh, it turned out that he was the author of all of these fascinating books that you could buy like in local tourist shops or in the grocery store, Um, but they were all uh, books about local legends and ghosts. So there's, you know, Ghosts, Bandits, and Legends of Old Monterey, uh, Shipwrecks and Sea Monsters of California's Central Coast, Tales, Treasures, and Pirates of Old Monterey. And, um, you know, these books really conferred a sense of the area being pervaded with strange and often dark spiritual forces, specifically ghosts. He he details in case after case hauntings of older houses, specifically the old adobes and Victorians, uh, uh, you know, and the adobes that were built at the time of Spanish occupation, many of which are still standing in downtown Monterey. So he also extensively documented ship rocks, uh, shipwrecks along the shores of Monterey and the high strangeness that accompanied these events. Um, Other old tales and legends of the area. So I spoke with him a couple years ago. I ran into him on the street, but he had Alzheimer's and he couldn't communicate very well. Did not remember me. And from that meeting, his wife sent me one of his last books. This book called More Than Memories. But his um, books—they were really important to me growing up there. Both of them, uh, him and Steinbeck, really shaped my understanding of uh, Monterey, uh, the Monterey area, as having something more than meets the eye. So. Another place was the El Carmelo Cemetery, um, which was a cemetery down the street from my house. I used to walk with my grandparents there when I was a very young child. And uh, when I was old enough to ride my bike, my friends and I would ride our bikes down and there and just hang out in the cemetery. And I felt like I absorbed something, a feeling there. You know, it became a very significant place to me, significant memories. I've had extraordinary synchronicities there. It's a place that I dream about, you know, big Jungian dreams. Um, and uh, I found a satanic shrine there. There are these acacia bushes, and I remember we climbed way into them, and someone had uh, drawn, I think the the people who ran the uh, graveyard had dragged these coffin liners, so they're like kind of these big sarcophagi out there in the acacia thicket, Uh, but you had to climb through these tunnels, and uh, we got to the end of one of these tunnels, and it let out into this sort of room within the acacia tree uh, th- thicket. And uh, there was a coffin liner and on the coffin liner was written all of this strange text that we couldn't read. And then there was a upside down pentagram and there were fingerprints in blood in four circles around it. And I remember we were just in awe of it and we'd go back and kind of feel drawn to it. And there was a real crackle of energy to it. But it also felt forbidden, and it felt dangerous, and we didn't know who had done this. And I remember one time we went back after having seen it a number of times, and a friend of mine, my friend Adam, he he chipped it out of the the, the cement in the side of the uh, of the the liner with the end of a the claw end of a hammer. He said, "It's evil. We're not supposed to look at that." And I remember, you know, uh, you know, I've never been a Satanist, but uh, I remember feeling like something had been lost, some type of numinous experience, and some type of edge uh that that uh that had been opened up to us. Um since then I've had you know other profound experiences. I had a psilocybin experience there, one Halloween visiting my grandparents' graves. I mean there's family buried there too. It's so it's a it's it's a it's a it's a significant place for me in terms of um ancestral power and kind of animistic presence. So this is also uh, right nearby is the setting of a of a of a film that is, uh, about a man named Christo Ropolo. It's a documentary called the curse of the man who sees UFOs. And Cristo Ropolo is a kind of a local Pacific Grove Monterey, uh, personality. Um, he was involved in the eighties and nineties in the sort of the local industrial music scene. Uh, from what I understand, older people who I knew, uh, said that he was involved in, uh, speed or methamphetamine use. They, they said he was the guy that like if you were out of speed late at night, you'd be like, "Ah, oh, we have to call Christo and listen to him talk all night because he was oftentimes the guy that was holding. Um, so C- Christo uh, has since then, you know, cleaned up and he's like a very charismatic, funny, interesting guy. And he has been filming UFOs over the Monterey Bay from Pacific Grove for a very long time. And th- this film, The Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs, it it, it features a lot of his uh, footage which is you know some of it is quite good o- other of it is just lights in the sky you know kind of like orbs uh that don't seem to uh you know break the laws of newtonian physics but you know and for him this is a very spir- spiritual thing uh and he's you know um he's just like he's humorous he's raunchy it's, it's it's definitely worth watching um but it's set in this area and there's a lot of beautiful scenery of the of the pacific grove coastline there he um He connects this to an event that happened on November 3rd, 2013. He connects the UFO phenomena. I'm not exactly sure how, but there was a, a, we we call it the burning man of Point Pinos. Uh, One morning on November 3rd in 2013, this man, Richard Hafner, Hafner, people sort of turned all of a sudden and saw a man completely engulfed in flames running down the golf course and He ran all the way down the golf course towards the sea and into a bathroom at a a, a place. It's a bathroom for golfers there at Crespi Pond. And he ran into the bathroom, collapsed and burned up utterly died. Uh, Fire and police showed up, extinguished the body, but he was already dead. They said that they could smell accelerants. Um, Ropolo in the documentary, they go back to that place into the bathroom, and he shows where you know the the entrance, the stone entrance to the bathroom, has been charred uh, from from the flames. And you can still go to this day, and you can still see the the, the, the charred stones there. I mean, even though this happened ten years ago, so uh, it you know he points it out in connection to this it, that it's a place where he saw where he's observed UFOs, these orbs of light that come over the Pacific and tend to come from over the Santa Cruz mountains. Um, But it was this man, yeah, named Richard Hafner. um, And there's a connection to a friend of mine who lives nearby in an apartment complex next to the golf course. Um, This friend of mine, after Hafner burned up on the golf course, police came by and questioned him. And they said, what do you know about Richard Hafner? And he was like, I I don't know. He said, well, what do you know about the recent burning death of this man on the golf course? And he said, I have no idea. And they said, well, how can you explain that there is mail that belongs to you in his apartment? And he says, "Uh, I I can't explain it. And he said, which apartment is it? And they gave him the apartment number. He says, oh, I used to live there. I only recently moved. And so it seems like it was just junk mail that was continuing to go to the wrong address. So that explained that. Um, But this is interesting. This is a sort of an interesting uh, convergence of things that happens here. So... Also in this apartment building lives a woman named Chrissa Bo Bosley, who is uh, I think most people who lived through the eighties remember her. She was the iconic greased up bikini woman holding, uh, like a holding a with a picture of her firing like an Uzi. These are posters that were sold in surplus stores or in the back of Soldier of Fortune magazine. They became extremely popular with the Nicaraguan. Contras, and she became kind of an icon of their counter-leftist movement. So she got to know my friend, and they became uh, somewhat involved. And um, in knowing her, she revealed to him that she was at one time married to Chuck Traynor, who had been the impresario behind the creation of the film Deep Throat, Deep Throat. Um, and had also been married to uh, Chuck, Chuck Trainer before he was married to her, was married to Linda Lovelace, Linda Lovelace, the porn star, uh, who claimed that Trainer would rape, beat, and pimp her out to other men, and that in order to do this, he would hypnotize her and used what she claimed were other mind control techniques in order to get her to perform sex work and in pornographic sequences. So he was also married to Marilyn Chambers, the uh, uh, pornographic actress from uh, Behind the Green Door, Insatiable, and the Cronenberg film. Rabid. So this is an ex- the example of the kind of extraordinarily L- uh, Peter Lavenda esque convergence of events that could only really happen in Pacific Grove. You've got uh, orbs of light over the bay connecting to uh, industrial musician Christo Ropolo, Then my f- connecting to my f- uh, the the Burning Man on the golf course connecting to my friend who was a you know brilliant and troubled poet and musician and uh, b- bodybuilder, and uh, and then. Uh, that connecting to the right-wing and contrasexual icon Chris bosley connecting to chuck trainer and the role of mind control and hypnosis in the mainstreaming of pornographic films in the 1970s so you know i'm not sure what to make about that convergence but it all happened there uh in one you know very small area all of that stuff is in play and it's you know uh it continues to to, to go on um there was a sequel to the film Uh, The Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs made by a childhood friend of mine named Matt Gober, who who now goes by the name Matthew Calamane. He he named it uh, simply The the Man Who Sees UFOs. And I think the implication there is uh, that it's not a curse to see UFOs. Um, So Ropal is not the only one to have seen UFOs in the area. Monterey Peninsula is replete with accounts of UFO sightings and contact events. Um, I have friends who've seen a variety of craft silvery objects orbs of light um, and uh, there's also written apor- reports online you know uh, on December 15th 2022 there was a a, a, a bla- huge black triangle seen in the area this was reported to MUFON and uh, these reports also include accounts of USOs in uh, as well so under uh, uh, unidentified submersible objects which is interesting given that the, there's a submarine trench that starts in the bay which gives access to extremely deep water right off the coast. So um, one of these stories involved a beam of light, a woman driving in a car, seeing a beam of light emerging from the waters of the bay, followed by a craft that shot off to the north at incredible speed. And, um, you know, this is the source of extensive speculative rumor about the existence of deep water submarine bases in the Monterey Bay. People have reported hearing buzzing and humming noises coming from the waters in the bay. And, uh, people connect this to the the submarine trench, which, you know, that's further north where that starts. It's up by Moth, Moss Landing. And uh, that is where the Salinas River dumps into the bay. But, you know, not too far out, you can get 5,000 feet under underwater. So uh, this also accounts for why the water in the Monterey Bay is so extremely cold and why uh, all the surfers there, you know, you, you can't be a water wimp if you're going to surf in Monterey. It's very uh, you know, it's very cold water surfing and swimming. So this is also, uh, you know, another thing I, I detailed it in my last appearance on the farm. I had my 2001 contact experience on 17th street when I was living with my grandmother, which resulted in me seeing a, a, a craft, although that was in a different city that was in San Francisco. So, um, you know, like I said before, I've had friends who've had different levels of interactive contact with craft in the sky and you know, accompanying shamanically entangled high strangeness. And this includes uh, one person I know who went on to work uh, pretty closely with Stephen Greer. So Pacific Grove is also the home of uh, uh, Lovecraftian, Typhonian mythos contributor and friend of H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith. Um, he moved here. He, he grew up in Auburn, California, which is in the north It's, uh, you know, up in gold country, but he moved here later in life. He got married to a local woman and he worked here as a gardener um, and he also did writing and sculpting here. There's uh, books and photographs of his sculpture, which I I don't think gets enough credit. He's got a lot of credit as a writer, Um, but his sculptures are really interesting, very primitive looking stone faces and masks that I think um, are, they feel feel to me connected to descriptions of idols, you know, from, from H.P. Lovecraft. Um, And he's, he was said to have spent a lot of time uh, just sort of wandering along the foggy coastline uh, often at night Um, is kind of like solitary, lonely guy. Um, There is, there is a prominent sculpture of a mountain lion, kind of a very gargoyle stylized mountain lion on central Avenue that is commonly acknowledged to be one of his later sculpture works that stands there. And it's in very good condition um also in this area the the waters off of Point Pinos where the 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 man burned and and the UFOs appear this is where John Denver died um uh he crashed a small experimental aircraft into the bay on October 12 1997 and you know there was always uh talk of you know he he had been drinking or he crashed the the, the plane while he was drunk because I know he struggled with alcoholism. I don't think that was true um an, another rumor that that, that circulated among people that i knew was that his head was severed when he uh crashed and that it was never found and some people have claimed to you know afterwards seen it floating in the waters of the bay you know that is i definitely can't corroborate that but worth pointing out that uh, john denver was born in roswell new mexico in 1943 um i'm going to get in to now uh, a a couple killings that happened in Pacific Grove or one was a a a killing and the other one was an attempted killing but they're both related to Vampire the Masquerade the first was um a person who was killed named Chris Olinger and this happened on September 18th 1996 um so I was a freshman in high school and I remember I mean it, it it really uh, it, it spread a wave of fear and paranoia through my group of friends and through the community at large. I, I didn't know him directly, but he was friends with a close friend of mine, and he was part of a local Vampire the Masquerade group.
0: Uh, for those of you listening to this here, uh, Vampire the Masquerade uh, was a RPG, a role-playing game, uh, kind of what's uh, more, I guess, a themed version of D&D. Uh, Just to put that in perspective i'm sure a lot of people listening to this know what vampire the masquerade is but just uh, for those of you possibly unaware uh yeah it was an interesting rpg and this is very curious because this is not uh the only time that murders have been linked to this i did of course the uh show on the kentucky vampire thing with jj vance a couple of months ago actually it might have been closer to a year ago Uh, but anyway you had good old rod farrell uh from uh what was it murray kentucky who had essentially uh started a full-blown cult uh supposedly based on vampire the masquerade around 1997 which had resulted in a couple of deaths across the country and uh there may have also been another cult another vampire cult in kentucky on the eastern side of the state that was also inspired by vampire the masquerade but yes, it's the game has quite a intriguing history, to put it mildly. So anyway, um, with that in mind, that might be a little bit better backdrop as you get into your story here, Matt.
1: Yes, yes, I think, yeah, farm listeners should go back and listen to those episodes because they do c- connect to what's happened, what happened here in Pacific Grove in the mid 90s. So I remember seeing, you know, I mean, the, the the vampire groups and, you know, I think when they started appearing, I was about 10 years old. And this was very striking to me as a small, like a pretty naive small town kid All of a sudden, there were groups of all these people, like late teens, early 20s, dressed completely in black, capes, trench coats, wide brim hats, pancake makeup, you know, maybe blood at their mouth. um, Just sort of like hanging out silently downtown, you know, and with this kind of, you know, this kind of sinister gravitas, you know, like they weren't joking around, you know, Um, so... Chris Olinger became, you know, he, I think he was like an ROTC kid, um, but he eventually got involved in Vampire the Masquerade. And a friend of mine said that he went all in, the, fr- the, the this friend of mine who was friends with him, he went all in, you know, and, you know, wore a cape and identified as a vampire. You know, c- according to Chris's half brother, he claimed, you know, Chris had claimed to have actually drank human blood. And, and his, the family and other people around here do think that uh you know uh perhaps there was cult activity going on um so he grew up in pacific Grove, but moved to monterey for high school so we didn't go to the same high school Uh, but uh yeah i used to see him and other people around in front of you know rocky coast ice cream parlor or the lighthouse theater downtown or the liquor store Uh, the night he was killed he was working on a high school project he was he went down to lovers point and was taking night photographs and he was found Further away, he was found again out by Point Pinos and Crespi Pond. He had been—he was found by a jogger in, in, the next morning. He had been stabbed 30 times and thrown off a cliff. Um, he had managed to climb back up the cliff and collapsed near a walking path where he had been found, and um, it was unsolved. and And this was the point where the wave of fear and paranoia passed through my community. It was the subject of you know, uh, his family maintained that, you know, for, for years after his death, that the vampire group were somehow responsible for his death. And it was the subject of rampant speculation in local urban, urban legends. You know, I mean, like people said that his body was found crucified under Fisherman's Wharf. Every knew that everyone knew that the body had been moved or he had been ab- ab- abducted in one place and moved and killed to another place. So, um, it was later solved supposedly, um, uh, because his, his, mother's car which had been stolen after the uh taken after the, the the murder was later found in San Jose uh to the north here uh, uh at the south end of the San Francisco Bay Area and there was a palm print on it the palm print matched to two young men who were involved in gang uh, gangs uh Jacobo and Angel Ruelas who were 17 and 18 years old at the time of the murder so they ended up being um convicted of this crime and being put away um, and this is all detailed in an NBC program, kind of like a little docudrama called "Dead of the Night" that aired in 2017. And um, but but it, it it you know it happened within that vampire milieu. Some people still believe that the that the you know the the vampire group was somehow responsible for it. It's not clear, although there was a conviction of these gang-affiliated guys from San Jose. Um, the next uh, the, the the next attack it was not a killing it was an attempted killing was of a uh, a woman that that i ultimately came to know named brooke i'm only going to use her first name uh because that's what was used in the papers this is part of record but her confidential confidentiality you know was protected insofar as they didn't release her last name so that happened on november 11th 2000 um and brooke was a former runway model i think she was 19 or 20 at the time and um She had moved to the area because she had been working in fashion and had was burned out with it. I think there was, you know, I I don't think that that's a it's a a career that can be pretty damaging. You know, Uh, I think she did runway modeling. So she had that kind of long, you know, very leggy build and, you know, an interesting face. And um, she moved to Pacific Grove to, to kind of like take a break or get away from it is my understanding. And I think her family had a home there down by the water. Uh, between Point Pinos and Lover's Point and um, she went she was staying there and she went down to the beach to smoke some pot at night and I think she she did that and walking back there's a walking trail this is a place where I walked in the middle of the night hundreds and hundreds of times Um, and she encountered two men who stopped her Um, one came up behind her and grabbed her held her arms and the other one began stabbing her and they stabbed her 11 times and one time through the lung, um, and they slit her throat, and they put her down on the ground, and they stood over her, and they were saying, you know, they were kind of like wondering, is she going to die now? Is it, you know? And she said to them, you know, this was part of the court proceeding. She said, "You can stop now. I'll die. Just stop." At which point, they reached down and they slit her throat a second time, and miraculously, they did not hit the carotid artery. So she lied there. She she lay there bleeding badly injured, and was found by someone walking and was taken to the hospital and ended up surviving. Now, I came to know her after this, after, uh, you know, the the trial of the people who stabbed her. But um, I remember at that point, I got a phone call. I was living up in Humboldt County going to school. And uh, I was 18. And I remember my father calling me and he said, something terrible has happened. And I know when you come back to visit, you like to walk around at night. He said, "But I, I think you neither need to stop doing that, or you need to consider, uh, you know, just being very careful because there was a woman who was stabbed down on the walking trail by the water." And uh, so, so for for a while afterwards, um, they didn't. It was unsolved, and uh, all of a sudden, it came out in the newspapers that two, uh, two, I think they were Marine Corps. Uh, two military guys at the Defense Language Institute in the Presidio of Monterey were arrested for the crime. And what happened was that there was some suspicion about weird behavior. So they, uh, you know, sort of like superior officers got their journals, read them, and and found full-on confessions of the murders. And so there was a lot of uh, and there was there was references to Vampire the Masquerade, there were references to Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho, and also there were extensive descriptions of things that they would call Black Ops, which was this kind of self-training they would do in the, the hills of Monterey, which was, it involved sneaking around dressed in Black, stalking people, stalking each other, trying to move without being seen. And um, also in the journals, they found that you know really, when they interviewed them they, they admitted to it and and uh they said that they wanted to know what it was like to kill someone and so they decided to start with just a random person in Pacific Grove and um then they had plans after that to start breaking into houses uh in Pacific Grove plans to find a family and to break in and to kill the men and then rape the women and then kill the women so uh they both were, uh caught and sentenced to you know i think it was like you know the kind of 25 to life kind of thing um but uh uh one of them just paroled and the other one it's looking like he might parole uh soon so i came to know brooke um the first time i met her i was with a, a woman that i was dating and her her older brother and we went into a restaurant and there was brooke uh she was the hostess in the restaurant and it was this really weird experience um My girlfriend at the time, she was kind of psychic or, or, uh, you know, porous, psychologically porous. And I remember uh, her, her brother had previously dated Brooke before the stabbing. The stabbing happened. And then Brooke was rehabilitated, working this job. And then they had just run into each other again for the first time at this restaurant, all of us together. Brooke and my girlfriend looked at each other and they both turned and ran out of the restaurant inexplicably you know, they both ran out of the restaurant and I was left there with my girlfriend's brother and her mother. We were, we were like, what the hell just happened? And so I kind of slowly turn and I walk out and I go out to the sidewalk and there Brooke and my girlfriend are cradling each other in, in each other's arms with their heads together. And they're both weeping. And after that was done, uh, I, you know, they kind of wiped their eyes and we kind of ended up going inside and sitting down and having lunch. I asked my girlfriend, I said, what happened there? And she, she said, I, I don't know. I don't know. And she couldn't articulate it, but something happened. It was almost as if something passed between them, some nonverbal thing that evoked this really strong response. Um, and And I don't, know i I don't know if it had to do with the stabbing or what or some connection that they had but after that uh her brother started dating brooke again and i ended up spending a a bunch of time with her uh and she eventually moved to san francisco and i lost track of her um but uh yeah as i said uh her 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 attempted killers were uh uh jailed and one has been uh, jason blad has been paroled uh it was parole he was paroled on february 22nd 2023 after serving 21 years in prison prison and they're they're talking about carson next so uh you know like i I think they also were involved in other uh role-playing games there was one called after home i tried to look it up i couldn't find any um evidence that it was like a commercial game and i kind of came to the conclusion that it might have been something that people made up at uh fort ord i think they would travel to fort ord to to play this game with people um one last thing about pacific grove i'll say this had an incredible music scene almost every one of my friends growing up were musicians uh, many of whom went on to do a, a bunch of interesting things and i think this is sort of a trickle down from the artistic heritage of the era of the area the sort of history of uh uh you know bohemians kind of outsiders um and hippies um uh, you know and and also things like the monterey pop festival which i'll talk about uh more about later
0: the uh, the marines are quite striking especially the possible uh tie to the monterey language school um which was quite uh famous or infamous depending upon your point of view for training a lot of um military intelligence officers in sure. foreign languages over the years but i in this case it's especially interesting because um may Brussel. Who was actually a resident of nearby Carmel, which we yeah. talk about here in a little bit, had yeah. actually alleged uh, that one of the perpetrators of the Zodiac uh, murders had also was also a Navy man who had studied at the uh, Monterey Language School.
1: Yes, I, I'm going to talk more about the uh, the DLI as we call it, the Defense Language Institute. But but uh, yes, I, in general, I think by and large, from what I understand, it's mostly in people who are being groomed for it intelligence operations passing through there
2: yeah
0: that's uh that's definitely a fascinating connection in addition to all of the uh the vampire the masquerade stuff as well yes oh my goodness and people always believe firmly that carnival is a creepy pasta or carnival i guess um Uh anyway that's that's another topic well, let's get into Monterey proper itself then, since it's a bit of our anchor here, so to speak, and it's probably the most well-known of the places we're covering here. So real brief, Matt, what is its history like?
1: Yeah, Monterey, I mean, the name means the King's Mountain. It's a it's a former, uh, it was a Spanish colonial city. It was the former Spanish, Mexican, and U.S. state capital um, for a while. I mean, now, now California, it's Sacramento, but um, it was also a major port. And there's lots of old historical buildings, specifically old uh, adobes that still stand and in which people live and operate businesses. So it's also the site of Cannery Row, you know, which was immortalized by Steinbeck, uh, this sort of industrial fishing area and all of the interesting personalities there, including Doc Ricketts and Joseph Campbell. Um, People lived in the canneries there after the uh, sardine populations collapsed and i mean they were living there into the 90s and we knew punk transients who lived in squats along the shore sometimes the the canneries would sort of catch on fire from a, a squat that was uh you know uh that had been set up there some people lived in old rusty boilers and abandoned pipes um one thing that's really cool that's there is a uh, doc ricketts lab um there's a whole scene that developed around it that you can read about in the the, the steinbeck books uh cannery row and sweet thursday but the lab is intact and has not been changed it was bought by a private group of citizens who have like a drinking club that meets there but i think it's about once a month they they stopped it for covid for a bit but you can have um you can have tours of it and it's incredible it's an old you know uh it's an old redwood building it's uh, and you can go in there and it's just like steinbeck described i mean there's the, the the typewriter, there's the piano there's the old bottles of liquor in the back are the uh you know the um collecting tanks for marine animals from uh you know doc rickett's uh business that he had there so that's i mean if you ever go to monterey you know of course you're going to want to go to the aquarium but right next door is doc rickett's lab it's absolutely worth seeing um because steinbeck made these places legendary and they have been preserved so nearby is the monterey bay aquarium Um, this is where I learned that you don't always need drugs to get totally high. You know, the, the jellyfish and outer bay exhibits specifically are just breathtaking. Um, I, I remember at one point they had a baby great white, you know, you can't keep a great white in, uh, captivity for very long because it starts to bite and eat the other fish. So I remember seeing it and just how aggressive and powerful it was. They had to let it go though. Um, also, this is the first place, worth noting, it's the first place that I heard ambient music, which to a large degree shaped my musical sensibilities. Um, you know, they had great ambient music accompanying the exhibits there. So um, another piece of history is the Monterey Pop Festival at the Fairgrounds. My mom was there, I think she was 16 or 17. Um, that was uh that was, uh, you know, that's where Hendrix famously burned his guitar. Otis Redding brought the show down at the end of the, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, at the end of the festival, um, who else played, you know, like Janis Joplin gave a famous performance, uh, Canned Heat, I think The Who played, or maybe that was Woodstock. Anyways, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a film you can watch um, that's amazing. Um so that's, a, that's another thing, which I feel like there's echoes of that all throughout the area, is the sort of the hippie bohemian legacy. Um, let's talk about the Defense Language Institute. So this is a, a, a language school that services all branches of the U.S. military. Um, and people who go to school there, they're often studying languages and they go on to positions involving high-level high security clearances. So this is something that I took off of a a site that people who had had been there. Uh, Most of the duty stations for cryptological linguists are in foreign countries, often at small remote locations. This is saying that um, basically most people are being trained to be cryptological linguists. Uh, some cryptolinguists will be assigned to airborne positions and fly at the, as back-end crew on RC-135 aircraft. You will work with a very tight group of cryptolinguists, analysts, and other specialists, and you will spend most of the year just mastering the skills that you need to perform your job. Due to the extremely high security that is involved with this job, you will not be allowed to talk about it outside of work and will not be allowed Uh, uh, to even tell your family very much about what you do and I can
0: interject right quick too the uh, fact that they mentioned they're specifically airborne that tends to imply that they're they would be operating with special operations forces other kind of elite forces like the 101 or the 82nd airborne um but yeah usually when you've got that kind of training um you know where potentially you're jumping out of a plane or something with a parachute um you're going to be working with very elite forces in that capacity
1: right right and I think that the the, the stuff about um, uh, the training that I'll get into in a little bit here speaks to that, too. This is not your average training for a kind of PFC type grunt. Um, so uh, it's very difficult, too. I think it's something like 30 to 50 percent of recruits who go into the DLI, uh, they fail. It's intensive language study. You submit a, a language wish, wish list, and then you are assigned a language, often not the one you want to study. I'm guessing it's a lot of Middle Eastern languages at this point, uh, but probably a fair amount of Chinese and Korean too. Um, so it's common knowledge that uh, you know most of these people are headed into intelligence. I, I knew someone who studied there and he w- was involved during the, uh, the, the war in Iraq in interrogations and he was horrifically traumaf- uh, traumatized as a result of uh, what he had to do to people, not uh, what was done to him um but again didn't talk much about it but I got the sense that he was haunted and in some ways broken um I also have known former DLI students in the community uh who have talked about being exposed to enhanced interrogation techniques uh and being intentionally traumatized um like you know we're talking about starved uh fingers broken that kind of thing you know I, I I don't know if that's true but this is this is what I've been told by people who've studied at the DLI um and that seems like it's maybe more you know more of a special forces level training where where you know they're they're really uh, you know pressure testing you in a major way um it's also speculated that that it's not just foreign language study there but that it's also studying the sort of the deeper structures of language and communication in a, in a linguistic way there um I I've heard that said so that's an interesting place uh and it, it's where the the two killers uh, Jason Blatt and Jesse Carson or sorry the, the attempted murderers were were stationed. Um, and there's a lot of you know people in Monterey you know the, the guys with the short haircuts um who are studying there. So the next place um it, it really interesting place is the the Naval Postgraduate School um and I'm going to uh it, it's 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 a hang on one second. so the Naval Postgraduate School, is located in monterey proper it's uh kind of actually more on the eastern side and it's uh it used to be more open i used to go there when i was a kid to listen to music they would have like bands play on the lawn and stuff like that post 9 11 they shut all that stuff down um but it is a big place for the navy navy intelligence and sort of research and development of uh all kinds of stuff. I'm just going to go to their website and read a bit about the departments at the at the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, uh, so here, here are departments. Uh, applied Mathematics, Computer Science, Defense Analysis. Okay, uh, that's kind of predictable. Mechanical and Aerospace engi- uh, Engineering, Physics, uh, depart- Department of Defense Management, um, Applied Cryptologic Engineering, Crowd Dynamics Modeling, Cyber Academic Group. Um, Space Systems Academic Group, Undersea Warfare Academic Group, Aerodynamic Decelerator Systems Center. Uh, they run the uh, Center for Autonomous Vehicle Research, the Center for Cyber Warfare, um, uh, Center for Modeling Human Behavior, Center on Combating Hybrid Threats, uh, Spacecraft Research and Design, Turbo Propulsion Laboratory. Um, the Consortium for Intelligent Systems Education and Research, um, Modeling Virtual Virtual Environments and sim- Simulation Institutes. So, I mean, this is a uh, just just a few more here: um, Climate Security Network, um, Consortium for Robotics and Unmanned Systems and Education Education and Research. So, and then there's all all, all kinds of facilities: the Turbo Propulsion Facilities, Spacecraft Research and Design Center. So, I mean, this is really, really high-level stuff, and it's also something that if you live in Monterey and you know people who work there, you hear almost nothing about. There is a curtain of silence around this stuff. I know one person who studied their engineering, and he he ended up dropping out, but I didn't hear anything about all this stuff. I mean, you can see it on their website, but obviously, this is sort of high-level uh, research development of Naval weapons stuff. Um, I did find an academic paper uh, online saying that uh, I was talking about testing different craft, and it was saying that you know uh, the Naval Postgraduate School and the Monterey area in general is ideal uh, because to 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 use for testing aerial craft because of the marine sanctuary. Um, it means that there's, you know, this is sort of large uninhabited area where they can test things. Now, this this corresponds also with the lights that are often seen over the bay. You know, I, like I told you that recently I saw orbs over the bay. Um, but even back in 2010, I saw things that looked a lot more like drones with very conspicuous red and blue lights making these sort of loopy motions in the sky. And, you know, I think that there's a good chance that the, the, the craft that Ropolo, Christo, Christo Ropolo is so interested in, could have, so, could have something to do with the Naval Postgraduate School and things that are being developed there. You know, again, I'll say this, the things I've seen over the Bay have never defied Newtonian physics. They weren't uncanny. They, they weren't hard to explain. They looked more like drones to me, but also they're so far away that I can't tell. And when I looked at them through field glasses, they were just blobs of light. So NPS or Naval Postgraduate School is also the site of the old Hotel Del, uh, Del Monte, which had once been a destination of elites for uh, from the late 19th to middle 20th centuries. This is really, you know, I think uh, people like this saw um, Monterey as a halfway point, like like William Randolph Hearst specifically, Monterey as a halfway point between San Francisco and Hearst Castle. So, um, you know, uh, William Randolph Hearst stayed there a bunch. Salvador Dali famously held uh, his famous 1941 Surrealist ball here, with uh, you know guests like Bob Hope, Alfred Hitchcock, Bing Crosby. You can see bizarre photos of this on Google. You know, people being served plates of frogs. Uh, the dessert it was a huge naked woman cra- uh, crafted out of. Uh, sugar candy. This is not to be confused with the Rothschilds' 1972 surrealist ball uh, held in Paris. It's a different surrealist ball. Um, uh, so the the Hotel Del Monte burned down and was rebuilt at one point, but is replete with reports of ghost activity. Um, specifically, the man in gray, which is the the famous ghost that is seen again and again, haunting the hallways and the dining rooms of. Uh, uh, the Hotel Del Monte. So, r- related to NPS, uh, uh, I have a good friend who is a Pacific gas and electric meter reader, or he was for a long time, no longer. But that's a really interesting job because you get to go all kinds of places and you get to kind of just let yourself in places. It's mostly now a defunct job because, uh, you know, there's smart meters. But he used to go behind the scenes in a variety of settings. And he talked about encountering again and again unmarked, obviously, un- the uh, buildings that that were unmarked intelligence buildings in Monterey, oftentimes that had cryptic names like so-and-so and associates. And he said, you know, he'd go there to read the meter and all of a sudden they'd be like, you need to get security clearance. And he'd be like, why? This is just a building in downtown Monterey. And when he'd get the clearance and he'd finally get in, there'd be a room full of monitors with a bunch of people in suits, spaced out, gazing into the monitors and that as he made his way deeper into the facility, there would be rooms full of assault weapons and tactical gear, body armor. And uh, this friend of mine also was part of a local poker group with a, an NPS student. And they would always kind of press the, uh, the 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 student on what the hell he was doing at NPS. And the, the student was always cagey and silent um, when, when, he, when he was you know uh, pressed to talk about it. But he did let go, uh, let drop that he was doing. He he was involved with uh, some something to do with war game simulations, and also into artificial intelligence. And this was about ten years ago. He said that the AI that he worked with uh, was already beyond the the human ability to control. It was already. you know, uh, so sophisticated, he felt that it was not something he could control. Uh, he said that he felt okay about it though, because it was all happening on air-gapped computers that did not connect to the internet. Um, so the area just in general seems to be saturated with intelligence operators and their operations bases. I knew a number of retired intelligence operators, people who'd worked for the CIA, et cetera, who had retired in the area, you know, about my grandparents age, uh, p- people who I had met through various, uh, you know, pa- pa- uh, you know in various ways when I was younger um Monterey is also the site of the uh, Panetta Institute uh this started in 1997 for the study of public policy lots of future leaders and politicians pass through or come to give lectures I saw Bill Clinton speak at one of these events and there are direct connections uh from Panetta uh, you know P- Panetta's the former under Obama the the CIA director and he was a you know also before that a congressman with a background in army intelligence and then the last thing is the uh James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. Um and that is uh it's the it's a, the largest NGO in the world and it's devoted to curbing the spread of weapons of mass destruction. And uh it's uh you know it's a, it's a, it's graduates students uh, s- study and do research there and they study under uh, a, a big collection of former former senior government officials um and that is part of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey and they study I mean they, they have all kinds of different programs one on East Asia one on chemical and bio, biological weapons another on Eurasia export control um, Middle East non-proliferation so that's another interesting just sort of center which I think implies connection to intelligence Um, And it's directly in this area.
0: So to circle back to uh, the uh, the Monterey language school here right quick. Sorry, it's um, I've been fascinated with by a while, but uh, it also had occurred to me I had potentially uncovered another strange linkage of it and this one um, fittingly enough dealing with the manson killings hmm. uh, so for those of you uh who are familiar with tom o'neill's book on manson chaos charles manson and the secret history of the 60s this might be a bit of old news but to get into this a little bit um there were a group of drug dealers that there had long been rumors had been whipped or something to this effect at the plant yes. residence prior to the killings and that this may have been filmed and that might have been one of the factors behind it so anyway, uh, O'Neill had looked into this story and had found some credibility to it and it also had uncovered um, several of the figures involved with it there was I think a Billy Doyle, uh, one of the main guys was a curious figure named uh, Takot, I believe. T A C O T. And when O'Neill was able to meet up with this guy, he told him uh this is charles to by the way uncle charles to you've got to mm. look at names so he told um o'neill a really interesting story he alleged that um throughout this whole time frame when the Lee bianca murders were unfolding he was reporting to <clears throat> a gentleman known as hank fine who was supposedly a veteran of military intelligence during the second world war uh, specifically he claimed that fine was a member of the Army's military intelligence service and this is something that I've been looking into for a while so as far as the military intelligence service goes this was a World War II era intelligence unit in the army um G2 in other words and there were two branches of it uh, the more well-known branch were dubbed the Ritchie Boys and this was based out of the East Coast Camp Cambridge I think that was in New Jersey or no Pennsylvania excuse me Pennsylvania and this would have been the foreign language school for many of the individuals who were deploying to the European theater it specialized in German and Austrian um you know this kind of thing and then also a lot of the other languages that were spoken in Eastern Europe and the other branch was headquartered at the Presidio of Monterey and this is what trained many of the Japanese Americans who were used um for code breaking and that kind of thing uh on the Pacific theater so some interesting stuff with this the guy Hank Fine was actually a Polish immigrant which would imply that he probably would have been connected to the Ritchie Boys however it's possible that some of these guys might have gravitated over to the West Coast at the end of the Second World War but I do find that interesting that this guy Uncle Charles to would specifically single out the military intelligence service which again had two specific headquarters during World War II era. One was in Monterey and the other one was in Pennsylvania. So, again, I don't know if they had any specific connections to the Monterey uh, Institute here or the Defense Languages School. But it's, uh, again, another possibility that I don't know that can be totally ruled out given that uh, there seem to be a lot of curious figures who. Uh, have gravitated to this whole center around the Presidio in Monterey over the years. probably a lot of you listening to this are familiar to Big Sur for those of you unaware this is where Esalen is based uh that would be essentially the New Ages major Mecca in North America uh or at least it was Esalen has arguably fallen into decline in recent years but uh saying that its legacy lives on just doesn't really seem to do it justice so much of what we think of as the spiritual but not religious movement really came out of the ideology being uh essentially crafted together by esalen beginning in the sixties. So is there anything more to Big Sur than
1: esalen Matt? Yes, there's a lot. And I've spent a lot of time in Big Sur because I I grew up just 45 minutes south of there. So, you know, we used to we spent a lot of time as soon as we got driver's licenses, we were down there all the time. Um, so it's a wild coastal area. I mean, it's one of the most dramatic juxtapositions of mountains and sea you know it's like it's mountains that go direct i mean you know huge mountains that come directly into the sea with a uh very uh uh you know with a single two-lane highway that that cuts right along the coast you know often on cliffs high above so it's very dramatic very beautiful um previously uh, it has a history of homesteaders living there ranching um you know in the 20th century, more and more bohemians were drawn, were, were drawn there. So there's a, you know, Henry Miller and, and, and others. Um, now it's more an exurb for the wealthy, you know, second homes or people who live in sort of remote fancy big glass houses down there. Um, but there's, uh, I think a flea and Trent Reznor own homes down there. Uh, but it has a history of remote ranches and logging operations. Um, so there's, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, people who live there, Henry Miller, Elizabeth Smart, um, who wrote at Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept, uh, Richard again. there's many, many stories of UFO related high strangeness. I've had friends uh, see UFOs, a friend of mine who was sleeping out, camping out, you know, uh, at night and seeing a burning ball of light f- hovering above him that shot a spotlight light directly down on him and illuminated where he was sleeping. And then the spotlight disappeared and the ball of light flew with a burning comet's tail towards the horizon and disappeared in a matter of seconds. So, I mean, that happens. I mean, almost everyone I know who lives in Big Sur has some extraordinary UFO story. Um, It's also a place I think there's a fair amount of drug production and importation. You know, I know people who've seen boats dropping cargo on the beaches in the middle of the night. Um, there is a military base there, but it's been decommissioned. It's the it's a it's near the Point Sur lighthouse, and it's always been rumored that that was a substation. There's a big off to the left, there's a big sort of hill covered in a thick growth of cypress trees. And everyone always said that that was some kind of specter uh, you know, like James Bond Specter style hollow base where submarines would pop up. There's nothing to indicate that that's true. I think what came out is that it was secret during World War II, but it was a listening station for subs on the coast because the Japanese subs had come right up to the West Coast and I think even shot up a dock somewhere for uh, you know further in South, uh, Southern California. So the, the lighthouse there, uh, the Point sir lighthouse has a real reputation for being haunted. I mean, one account I was reading recently, the, the guy was saying, uh, you know, if you aren't, if you don't believe in ghosts, uh, you, you know that will change after you visit the Point Sur Light Station. Um, it's a supposedly a very sort of dramatically windswept, exposed place on this kind of island of rock out in the middle of the uh, the beginning of the Pacific. There, so yeah, there is Esalen. I mean, all the people there. I, I think you, you've talked about the, that a fair amount on your show. You know, people who I'm interested in, like Stan Groff and Yannick, psychedelic pioneers, also all kinds of people uh, in the um human potential movement including uh oh what's his name uh fritz perls uh, you know I, I i had experiences there cuz I, I had a, 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 a my my first girlfriend when i was in high school when we graduated she moved down there to to do a work study thing and so i would go down there and visit and i ended up spending a fair amount of time on the grounds at esalen going to the baths stuff like that and you know it was not a place for me uh it really felt like uh enlightenment for 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 the rich and it felt like kind of like uh you know just uh kind of like another fancy resort with a lot of uh a, v- a veneer of self-reflection and and spiritual uh experience over it um uh Ch- Charles Manson had some presence in Big Sur you know this they, they talk about it in that book chaos that you referred to um he spent time in uh, further North in a Canyon called Palo Colorado um I lived there for a number of months uh and, and I remember driving up the this is maybe in 2010 2011 and I remember driving up the Canyon with a friend and she would she would always point out at this burned out shack at a certain turn uh on the Canyon Road and she'd say there's Charlie Manson's place Um, I don't think this was true because according to what I've read, he only visited for short periods of time, but he did have friends in Palo Colorado Canyon and and was present there. And I think did go to Esalen and was maybe kicked out at one point. So um, Big Sur in general, it's a repository for wealthy people, marginal weirdos, artists. Uh, The locals do a lot of heavy drinking and drugs, and there's a real suspicion of outsiders or townies, as they call them. My first experience in Big Sur that I can remember was a camping trip, probably in the late 80s. And uh, I went down there with a few other families, my family and a couple other families. And one of the families we went with had a young cousin who was visiting from France named Emmanuel. And one day we all went to this sort of famous swimming spot at Pfeiffer Campgrounds called uh, the Gorge. And I remember coming back from the Gorge and there was this big commotion and everyone was freaking out. And Emmanuel had stayed behind at the campsite and she said that these strange people had come out of the woods and had approached her and started I mean you know now knowing the language I'd say they started love bombing her and they were like we love you you belong with us we're the only people who understand you you need to come with us and they tried to physically take her into the woods um and she ran freaked out ran and I remember her talking about this uh you know to, to her family and there was this but it was this idea which has been corroborated again and again, uh, at least, you know, uh, it's been it's been hinted at again and again that this is a thing that there are people living deep in the Ventana wilderness with almost no contact with uh, uh, c- civilization and that sometimes these are uh, cults. There are stories of what people refer to as walkouts, people who just walk out of civilization and live in complete isolation in the Big Sur backcountry. Um I knew someone, an artist, when I was very young who lived, who who went to live in the Big Sur woods for a while, and he stayed down there uh, sleeping uncovered, just sleeping in the woods, you know, uh, and he came back very strange and spaced out and was never the same. Back to UFOs, um, there was a famous sighting, the Anderson Peak UFO sighting, uh, September 22nd, 1964. You can see the witness, Bob Jacobs, talking about it. And it included, uh, basically on Anderson Peak, there was a a telephones, uh, sorry, a a telescope site where they could observe uh, missiles fired from the south at Vandenberg Air Air Force Base. And so this was an Atlas missile that was fired from Vandenberg. And Bob Jacobs was tracking it with this telescope. And he watched, you can hear him talking about this on YouTube. um, He watched several craft come up and fly alongside the missile and then be, begin to sort of spin around it and fire beams of energy into it and disable it and send it spiraling into the ocean below. This was not carrying a live warhead. warhead. It was a test missile, but it demonstrates yet another connection between the UFO phenomena and our nuclear weapons technology. Um, you know, there's been debate about it, but this is uh, part of Big Sur history. Um this is uh, the now we're getting to the the sort of the genius loci of 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 big sur uh, uh this is so, sort of a um a, a deep thing it's not been well documented but it's very well known among among big sur locals and it has been handled in literature to some extent which is the dark watchers the legends of the dark watching figures in the hills of big sur um the first place i encountered this as a child well actually that's not true um I, I actually knew someone who saw A Dark Watcher. I'll, I'll get to that. But um, the first place you can encounter it in a, a published source is John Steinbeck's story, Flight. Um, it's about a young man who kills someone and needs to flee into the hills. And his wife, or no, sorry, his mother hands him a gun and some beef jerky and and and, and says, flee into the hills. You need to go. They're going to come. You know, the sort of the, uh, uh, like a, a posse is going to come after him. And he sa- And she says, beware the dark watching men. Um, and that's all that's all it says but it's uh, part of big sur uh uh local legend the the, the other one is a reference to a, in a poem by the local poet Robinson jeffers in a poem called such counsels you gave to me um this is of particular importance to me because my grandfather was uh, in in the third source uh uh that's a documented account of uh uh or a reference to The Dark Watchers. And that's one of Randall Reinstead's books. It's kind of how I became familiar with Reinstead. Um, And my grandfather used to go hunting on a ranch that my uncle Ralph owned that went from the mouth of Bixby Canyon, where you have the beautiful Bixby Bridge. Everyone stops there to take pictures. It went from there all the way back through the Big Sur country into uh, Carmel Valley. It was a, a, a ranch called Palo Corona. He sold it in the 60s. But before that, my grandfather... And uh, his friend Dr. Light, and my uncle Michael and uh, Uncle Ralph would go pig hunting. They have these very very wild, you know, tough pigs locally that have very sharp uh uh you know tusks, and they're very dangerous to hunt um so they went down there to shoot pigs and they were wandering along these ridges, and my grandfather got separated from. Uh, from his companions and he had this strange feeling and he looked out across the valley to the opposing ridge and he saw a figure dressed in a long black cloak with a black hat gazing out across the sort of the emptiness of the valley just sort of like with this sort of uh sort of like empty expression uh and he was you know you know, struck by how strange this is. I mean, there's no one lives out here. This is very remote. And all of a sudden there's this black clad figure just gazing out and and that it also uh, connects to these local legends, which I think he knew about. And uh, someone, I think it was either my uncle uh, or Dr. Light called to my grandfather and he turned and then he looked back and the figure was gone. This is actually, uh, uh, that, that story is written up as a more recent dark watcher experience uh, in Reinstedt's book, "Ghostly Tales and Mysterious Happenings of Old Monterey," um, and there's even a kind of a charcoal drawing of of the experience. Um, I think an interesting thing to point out is that the 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 local tribes to the south uh, these 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 the Dark Watchers are seen throughout the um, Santa Lucia Mountains and to the south there's the Chumash tribe and they referred to the Dark Watchers as the Old Ones. So I don't know. I mean, I think that someone like Kenneth Grant would have a field day with that, uh, you know, that with a possible Lovecraftian or Typhonian dimension to the Dark Watcher phenomena, because he was definitely a kind of a universalist. So since then, many more people have claimed to see Dark Watchers. And it is it is actively something people talk about in Big Sur all the time now. And uh, um, Thomas Steinbeck, John Steinbeck's son, has even written, uh, I think it's either a book or a short story about it. Uh, since then so it, the the legend goes on and it and it people the sightings go on um um we'll get to a, a few killings now um you know there are all kinds of strange killings that happen in big sur that are inexplicable um recently i heard about some bodies dumped in a parking lot not reported in the local pa- papers you need to know pe- people to hear about these things um also uh something happened there's the there's the the highway one that goes along the coast uh, before that there was the old coast road which goes inland and it goes to some very remote places um uh r- during the pandemic there were there was a, a woman trying to drive along the old coast road on a remote stretch and men came out of the wood with woods with ar-15s uh and she noticed uh, boards with nails sticking out of them in the road and these guys tried to uh attempted to abduct her uh at gunpoint and she actually just drove as fast as she could across the, the boards and and uh outpaced them so uh there was also uh someone came out of the woods and shot someone at pfeiffer state park uh also something that was not uh really reported or handled in the local media um uh i don't have the date on this i want to say it's around 2007 but there was two mysterious deaths in gorda which is further down uh, f- further down the big sur coast to the south There were two women who came from Long Beach, Abigail Tapia and uh, Jacqueline Toes. One was 27, the other was 26, both from Long Beach. They checked into this hotel in Gorda right on the coast, and they stayed there for a few days. and, And at one point, they asked to be moved to a different hotel room, and it seemed like they wanted to be moved away from other guests. And people had heard, you know, a commotion in the room uh on the the night before uh they died but they were found in the morning uh i think housekeeping tried to you know uh knocked and no one answered they let themselves in and they were both found with their hands tied behind their backs um with plastic bags over their heads and halloween masks placed over the um over the plastic bags and i don't know how they came to this conclusion but it was eventually reported in the papers that this was uh, a, a seems to be a suicide pact now I don't know how how you uh, tie your own hands behind your back, to back while you're committing suicide. It seems unlikely to me, um, but perhaps the the, the police um, uh, had some evidence, you know, that uh, or I guess it would be the sheriff's department in that area uh, that that they didn't let on. I, I'm not sure. The last thing is a is something that happened. This was reported in a local tiny little paper called the Carmel Pinecone. Uh, But people were talking about it a lot in Big Sur, which was during the pandemic, there were also terrible fires in Big Sur. I mean, catastrophic, apocalyptic-seeming fires. And I I went down there for part of that. Um, I was living nearby um, and was visiting a friend in Big Sur. And so you had the sort of the layered stressors of the COVID pandemic, confinement, and then the fires, one of which eventually was proven to be arson at at a big cannabis grow on the South Coast. Um, but at that time, you know, everyone was already edgy and kind of freaked out. Um, uh, at that time, uh, someone went down Sycamore Canyon road on the way to Pfeiffer beach. Uh, there are, there are, uh, these two paddocks on either side of the, uh, on either side of the road and there are horses there and those horses are, you know, Generally acknowledged to belong to Al-, Al Jardine of the Beach Boys, and Al Jardine lives in a nearby house. Actually, where I've stayed the night, I, I knew someone who lived there, and I I'd stayed there before. Um, but during the pandemic and the fires, someone came and threw acid, uh, like hydrochloric acid, in the hor- in in in, the, 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 in in Al Jardine's horses' faces, and they were both badly injured, and no one knew why, but it was. I mean the idea of violence done to horses just you know twists my something in my stomach I mean like such sensitive psychic animals doing something like that and, and no one knew why they did it but there was something clearly uh very dark and twisted happening there. Um Yeah I and,
0: mean it's not just the fact that they did violence again them throwing hydrochloric acid in their face I mean that that yeah that's pretty intense.
1: Yeah yeah and it but it involves a former beach boy and 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 I and I I don't I don't know why this happened, if it was random or if it meant something, but, um, uh, you know, everyone was extreme. It was just yet it was that kind of like during the pandemic and the fires on the West Coast, it seemed like there were these this stacking up accumulation of disturbing events. And this was another one of these that was local in the area and everyone was freaked out by it.
0: No, totally understandable, because, I mean, that does seem like a very pointed incident. I mean, you almost would have to think that there was some kind of message to it. You just don't you know, normally go around and throw hydrochloric acid at a horse. I mean, there's a lot of other ways, if you were just looking to try to maim or injure the animal, you could probably do it. That would First off, I mean, where would you even get hydrochloric acid from? I mean, I would imagine that would take some... Yeah chemistry lessons or some contacts to get it so um, yeah,
1: yeah yeah it's it, I mean it's it's disturbing and it, and it indicates things that i i, I you know uh, like uh it's just like if you if you start to follow that trail speculatively it, it takes you to very dark places how bad were the fires around
0: there by the way because i know when they were unfolding a couple of years ago some of my friends were convinced that there was uh, potentially an act of domestic terrorism being carried out there
1: you know it was weird you know there the dry lightning came along one time and it lit a few fires and then all of a sudden there were like 400 fires happening around the state of California in places where there had not been dry lightning and that's never happened before and 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 you know even though it is drier due to climate change and you know we haven't had the small fires that clear out uh, uh you know brush so that the fires when they happen are more catastrophic given those things fires don't just spontaneously light themselves. So I I, I don't know, you know, I mean, you know, I've heard certain people speculating on why, you know, you'd have the entire state of California light on fire all at once, you know, um, it's, it's, it's curious. The one that happened, there was a a friend of mine had a cabin at a specific canyon in Big Sur called Big Creek that I spent a lot of time at as a childhood or, or in my childhood. And, um, uh, uh, there was a fire started, that one was proven to be arson and it was a, sort of a revenge thing, these people who were involved in a pot grow down there. And um, what happened there was amazing. I, I stayed there right before the fire. We left, the fire happened, burned the cabin, burned the the family cabin, burned a bunch of other structures in the canyon. And, you know, so it's like, okay, it's a big loss, it's sad. It's a place we had all gone a lot as, as children and 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 teenagers and had early you know, uh, ecstatic psychedelic experiences there, um, and then what happened was that the, uh, the the a lot of the roots and um, you know all of the biomass that's holding the hillside in place had burned. So when it rained the next year, I mean, millions of tons of dirt was just dumped into the canyon. And the canyon floor went up like 20 or 30 feet. So these are places where you go and they're totally unrecognizable. I mean, they were terraformed. So, I mean, the fires were extraordinary um, and they were catastrophic. And I mean, the fires have always happened down there, but they've gotten much worse. And uh, that one, there was a guy who came and turned himself in uh, uh, and is in, currently in prison as a result of having set that fire, which burned down this place, which I was, uh, you know, which was important to me.
0: Curious. Yeah. Uh, Let's get into another curious place here. This would be Fort Ord, I believe, and uh, possibly also nearby Seaside, California. So these are the sort of getting into the places I've never heard of at all. So start with the Ord here. What is its place and what's its origin story?
1: Fort Ord is really interesting. Um, It's east of Monterey. It started out as a a cattle ranch in the 1850s, and it was owned by the Giggling family. Uh, in 1904 the presidio began using the giggling farm for military training and in 1917 it became camp giggling and then the giggling reservation with slowly increasing troop presence they really did a lot of um artillery training there i remember as a kid uh, when the when the fort was still active lying in bed in pacific grove and hearing the sound of artillery crashing you know uh, uh mixed with the sound of crashing waves so it was like you know booming all across the uh all across the peninsula and you know that sound was always strangely comforting to me these sort of war sounds i, I for some reason i thought i was like oh yeah america's here it's going to protect me um uh you know it was primarily used for training and deployment uh, uh deployment staging during vietnam and they trained over the course of its time from 1917 to 1990 i think a, uh, about one and one and a half million troops passed through uh fort ord to be trained um, it's huge. It's larger than the city of San Francisco. There's um, an airfield, hospital, Olympic-sized sports facilities, beautiful old deco buildings, tanks, uh, heavy ordnance. You know, you could go out into the woods and find an old abandoned half track. Um, you know, um, and then they had just uh, tons of housing. You know, I mean, they had uh, housing for officers. They had, like, barracks-style ty- housing. Um, it has now become a toxic waste Superfund. Um, because in 1990, Clinton did all the base closures and they shut it down. It was a big blow to the economy here because the, the the military would spend a lot of money here. Um, and uh, they shut it down. And what they did was they just locked the door to every facility and they just walked away. I mean, they took weapons out, but everything else they left behind. So it was, um, and it sat there largely unexplored uh, until uh, the late 90s. And um it, it's now a toxic waste superfund site. So there's uh, jet f- big plumes of jet fuel that have sunk down into the water table. There's tons of lead. I mean, lead from rounds that they fired into the uh, you know, into the hillsides there for uh shooting ranges. And there's also uh lead paint, and there's other toxins too. Um so uh I knew a lot of kids whose whose dads were stationed there. I remember going there during um uh, Desert Storm, the beginning of Desert Storm, the first war in Iraq, and seeing my friends' dads off when they left. My, my dad was in the army too, but he was stationed further south at Fort Hunter Liggett. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, a bunch of different famous people passed through there. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of artistic figures. Uh, uh, here's here's one for you uh, Harold Budd and Albert Eiler, Harold Budd, the ambient musician, and Albert Eiler, the f- freaked out free jazz saxophone player, were stationed at Fort Ord at the same time and played in a band together in downtown Monterey, um, which just blows my mind. If you know anything about their music, I mean, they could not be more different. But then again, you can sense uh, kind of jazz sensibility in Harold Budd's background. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was also stationed there. Um, there there continues to be a military presence there. There's a big Department of Defense building. Um, and so the base was closed. I mean, it was, you know, to, to a large extent closed, except for the DOD stuff. And certain sort of private places um but it was just like a huge abandoned city and then in 1998 uh, a, a, a local girl from seaside named christina marie williams went uh missing and what happened was the fbi and she she was she was walking her dog near fort ord so what happened was the fbi came in this was a big deal a lot of celebrities got behind this and were you know, it was a big national thing of this, this young, missing 13-year-old girl. And uh, the FBI came into Fort Ord and they combed the entire base and uh, they created one point of entrance to every building. So they would either break a window, rip a door off, uh, have an entrance through a sort of a basement door or something like that. And on every building where they had created an entrance point, they would put a black X nearby uh, with with spray paint, and that meant that they either had created an opening or that they had cleared the building and they hadn't found anything there. So, what this led to was that around this time we had driver's licenses. Uh, we were looking for places to uh, you know uh, explore and have fun, and so we ended up driving out to the Fort Ord base, and it was utterly empty. I mean, there were hardly even police or sheriff sheriff's patrolling there. And if they did come there, we would always bring what we called a credibility prop. So we bring, uh, you know, like a like a little video camera or a film camera. i be like, oh, we're just out here working on a photography project. And they'd be like, get lost, you know. Um, but we were largely just had the run of the place. And it was incredible because we could get into any building. I mean, there was a huge stockade, which was hands down the creepiest place I've ever been in my life. Uh, it's an, an old... Um, an old building, uh, like with four foot high uh, uh, mounds of uh, pigeon droppings, uh, you know, poisonous air <laughs> inside um, and these incredible cell blocks stretching, you know, uh, tier after tier after tier, these huge uh, bases. We, we found out later on that uh, Nazis had been kept there uh, during World War Two and that there had been a mass suicide of Nazis in the stockade um so uh, i mean this place was highly highly creepy later it was turned into a um into a paintball range and then it was destroyed several years ago now it doesn't exist anymore because they're doing a lot of development out there which is a shame because we called this disneyland noir like this was our incredible playground we found underground tunnels we found we would break into huge old ballrooms you know empty uh drained swimming pools uh airplane hangars. um i mean it was just absolutely amazing um and a friend of mine uh, there was a high school teacher of mine named susan bean who became a good friend of mine she was my uh, journalism teacher and i began showing it to her and she fell in love with it she put out a book and if anyone wants to see uh photos of, of fort ord at its haunted Uh, uh, zenith um, check out susan bean's book it's susan uh, b-e-i-n the book is called fort ord requiem i think you can order copies on amazon but it's a it's a photo book of of these incredible haunted photographs of uh Ord because a lot of the it had a beautiful mid-century design aesthetic there was i mean and there was earlier stuff there was deco stuff deco buildings um and it was all being reclaimed by nature it was all getting covered in ivy and had you know, uh, you know, you'd walk into a room and there'd be an oak tree sprouting in the middle of the floor, you know. Um, so uh, they eventually found Christina Marie Williams' body, and uh, they found it on the side of Imjin Road. I actually just drove by there a couple weeks ago, and there's a big shrine to her. And uh, I remember my my dad worked for a dental agency, and one of his dentists did forensic work, and I remember him co- and I remember him saying the body they that they had found on the side of the road was being sent because it was you know badly decomposed uh was being sent to his his uh the the doctor who worked with him and that they were going to work to identify it identify it and i remember him coming home and telling us one night over dinner that the body found on the side of imjin road was in fact christina marie williams and that we couldn't tell anybody about it until it had been announced in the media so we all as a family kept it a secret um later on they uh 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 It was, uh, you know, Charles Holyfield was convicted of the murder. He um, uh, was only convicted in 2020, and he was already in prison for uh, um, different abduction rapes of which he had been convicted previously um, in the Monterey area. So I had these incredible uh, four-door experiences. Uh, uh, You know, I remember there was a place called the Engineering Division that was extraordinary. It was the set of communicating buildings that were filled it looked like they were doing like industrial fabrication there and and like maybe testing of different things because you'd walk into certain rooms and there'd just be like tons of old jeeps covered in tarps you'd walk into another room and there'd be just like gas masks flat files with blueprints tons of um you know uh um uh old polaroid photographs of different you know uh, documenting different things and it was all just completely abandoned one time we were making our way into this engineering division building and we were walking with a flashlight and it was all of these buildings that communicated to one another. And and we were walking into it for maybe 20, 25 minutes, you know, going from room to room to room to room. And these were all windowless rooms, I think, because perhaps what they were doing there was confidential. Um, And I remember getting deep into this set of buildings, like deep, deep, deep into it. And all of a sudden the flashlight started to die. And and then it died and we were like okay uh well my friend scott had a cigarette lighter so he pulled it out we lit it and we kind of started looking around thinking oh, maybe we should head back i don't know we were kind of looking around a little bit more and you know wh- what happened was he had the cigarette lighter lit for so long that the plastic pins holding the flint wheel in place melted and all of a sudden we heard this little clicking noise of the flint wheel hitting the ground and we were like oh shit. Okay, now the second that this lighter goes out, we're in complete darkness. About a half hour walk into this set of buildings, and all of a sudden, of course, you know, Scott staggers, or there's a gust of wind or something, and the lighter goes out. And so we all put our hands, we all grabbed hands, and we all backed against the wall. And then we had to start the very long process. I mean, I want to say it took us like an hour and a half, maybe two, <laughs> of feeling holding hands and feeling our way along the wall tripping over things having to negotiate around stuff and making our way back out by memory which was extremely disturbing and it wasn't that time but it was another time around then where uh my friend Scott saw a ghost uh he 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 and Scott was at the time i mean a tough guy like you didn't want to mess with him he was great in a fight and he was you know not one to get scared, not one to complain. I mean, a tough person. And I remember we were all kind of separated uh, uh, in this sort of industrial area. I mean, a huge boiler room areas, you know, and uh, I remember him walking towards me quickly and he was terrified. I'd never seen him like this. And he was like, we need to get the fuck out of here. And I was like, okay, okay. And I didn't know what he what he was talking about, he was referring to, if there was an actual physical threat or what. And we ran back to his truck. We got in and we drove out of there and we went back to Pacific Grove. And I was like, what happened? And he's like, I saw this thing. And I was like, what did you see? And he said a man dressed in a 19, like it looked like a 1930s fireman's uh, 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 costume, like a kind of a rubber cape with a big black hat, walked out of a doorway and then walked straight at him and walked up very fast. To the point where their faces were almost together and he blinked and closed his eyes and then the guy disappeared um and he swore up and down and this is not someone who was looking to uh make himself uh look foolish in any way he did not want to make himself look like a wimp in any way uh, you know and he um he had seen this ghost there and, and that always really struck me it seemed, it seemed like a pretty damn good place to see a ghost so um, yeah, we had a lot of experiences out there, you know, I mean, exploring huge underground cisterns, uh, you know, um, and uh, let me see. Um, there was another murder out there. Um, y- years later, when I was, uh, I think, about 18 or 19, I was working as a, an intern at the local newspaper, The Herald, and um, uh, a woman went. Woman named Rochelle Cherry went missing. And eventually they found her body and it was found uh, in Fort Ord. And, and and that's what everyone, and when everyone would joke around when I was a kid, they'd be like, oh, yeah, they're probably in Fort Ord. If someone went missing, oh, yeah, they're probably in Fort Ord. Well, lo and behold, Rochelle Cherry's body was found in a shallow grave behind barracks housing in Fort Ord. And um, I remember the crime reporter from the Herald and I went out to the uh, to the uh, um, press release that the sheriff was holding. And um, and they said we found, you know, they were kind of announcing that they had found this body and that they had identified it as Rochelle Cherry. And then the crime reporter, uh, uh, she said to me, you know, I know where they found the body. You want to go check it out? And I said, sure. So we went behind this building. We went and found the building and went behind it. And then there was a little uh, memorial constructed there with flowers and stuff. And there was a piece of plywood. And she said, lift up the plywood. And I did. And I was it was the first time i had ever smelled a decomposing human body. And I, I was, you know, I remember being really struck with that, you know, nausea wretch response um, and uh i think they believed that Rochelle cherry's boyfriend had killed her but as far as i could find the the uh they they did not convict him of it i think that that crime remains unsolved um now the, the, the next thing is uh, uh about fordord is a is a facility uh, i i had mentioned that fordord was originally uh owned by the giggling family and was known as giggling farm and uh, camp giggling. So there's a road called giggling that runs through Fort Ord. And when I was a kid, it used to have wavy lines in the center of the road, like, like to indicate silliness or giggling laughter. Um, um, so this is an article from uh, a website called nocap.today. You can check it out on that website. Website, And it's uh, it's really of unknown provenance because the website says that it's for whistleblowers, but then it acknowledges that certain parts of the article certain historical parts were rewritten by ai and there's also certain things about the article that have a little bit of the mouth feel or maybe some kind of uh, linguistic artifacts that identify it as an ai uh generated article uh maybe, maybe the whole thing i'm not sure is there certain certain types of awkward um awkward uh, uh wording and it's supposedly this former intelligence operative who was based at this facility in Fort Ord called the Giggling um, and uh, who who is kind of uh, unburdening himself, you know, uh, of this knowledge from his previous career. Now, why he chose Fort Ord and why he's using specific landmarks like Giggling Road and East Garrison, I don't know. That's odd to me. And But what he says is that... Um, uh he says that basically there is a supposedly a large underground facility um called the Giggling, and this is where they developed martial law strategies, you know programs like FEMA and alien invasion simulations that were uh, invented at this place um and there are even rumors of secret programs and uh, off world the study of off world propulsion systems being revealed by cryptography. That's what the article says um and it also talks about working with paperclip Nazis who had inform, uh, information about Die Glocke or the the Nazi bell, this uh, famous UFO that Joseph P. Farrell talks about that was uh, based in uh, Poland d- uh, during the Third Reich. Um, so so, paperclip Nazis at the giggling facility uh, who had knowledge about Die Glocke, and uh, advanced aircraft technology. So supposedly there's an entrance to the base to, uh in, in, in the, to the base in the East Garrison Park. Um and it says that it, it's near the intersections of trails 91 and 93. Now if you look at that on Google Maps, it's kind of a desert area out there. But they say that uh um it's supposed to be near the mouth of a naturally occurring cave. I'm going to have to go out and check it out. Um uh but it's uh you know it's 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 an interesting thing, and 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 it's you know the article asserts that you know to to this day, even though the base has been decommissioned, it still has many linguistics, cryptography, and top government facilities in the vicinity, which tracks with you know my my friend, the meter reader's experience, who who has gone into bases, you know, unmarked, uh, nondescript bases in that area. So, um, you know, I, I it, it 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 the 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 paperclip Nazis at the giggling facility that kind of tracks with articles that I was able to find, um, about Nazi prisoners at Fort Ord. Um, it's not clear if these were like, you know, more, uh, higher ranking actual Nazis, or if they were just like Wehrmacht soldiers. Um, but you know, these articles seem to kind of point at each other and I don't know if this is paperclip stuff or what, um, it's not clear. So, um, there is an article which speaks of an attempted escape by 500 German soldiers. Um, and then there's the uh, story of the mass suicide in the stockade. Um, and again, I've been in that stockade and it is, it was super cre- uh, creepy. Um, this also is worth pointing out. You know, i had always heard a friend of mine always told this story. Uh, About the uh, you know this this and other stories like it, but uh, it has to do with the presence of perhaps former Nazis in Monterey. Um, He received piano lessons from two people who were called Herr Bender and Frau Bender. They taught him classical piano, and he and his mother would go there and get he would get lessons from Herr Bender, and she would get lessons from Frau Bender. Um, but they stopped going when the benders started giving them Holocaust denial literature, and I think that the benders thought that my friend would have been sympathetic to this kind of thing due to the fact that he had a German last name, which he was not, and it ended the uh, uh, the piano lessons. Uh, but uh, my friend was convinced that uh, specifically Herr Bender was likely an ex Nazi. Um, so there's also been long running rumors about tunnels. That go from Fort Ord to Monterey, so perhaps to the DLI or to the Naval Postgraduate School. That's about ten miles away. Um, you know, that's just been bandied about in local myth and legend for a long time. I knew someone who was getting a degree at CSUMB, uh, the 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 um, the the college that's now based on the uh, it's a campus is based on uh, the, the old where Fort Ord used to be, and for his senior oh, project.
0: The Leon Panetti uh, Institute is right as well. Correct?
1: Yes, I think you're right. I, I think I spoke about that as if it was in Monterey, but it's actually in Fort. It's in Fort Worth. Yeah. Um. So, uh, a friend, a friend of mine was inter or this guy I know was interviewing uh, a former high-ranking colonel, uh, 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 about, uh, or maybe it was a general, uh, uh about the time uh, about I know for his um uh senior project, and he was asking him a bunch of questions. And he said, "What about the what about the stories about tunnels going from you know Fort Ord to Monterey?" And the uh, the officer said to him, "Can neither confirm nor deny the existence of those tunnels." And you know, which is a very cagey answer, you know, and and a very uh, you know, I don't know if he was just having fun with him, but also it seems kind of like. You know, if there's no tunnels, you just say, uh, there's you know, there's no tunnels, or or I don't know of any tunnels. So I'm not sure why he answered it that way, but it did kind of point to the possible to, to that being a possibility. Um, another thing that we found out there that we used to visit, which I mean, we were really not supposed to be there. I mean, good lord, was this place called the the Mount Impossible City, M-O-U-T Impossible City. It was a training facility. Um rumor had it that it was a mock-up of downtown Beirut and um, it was a place where all kinds of different agencies would do live fire training. So you could walk through all of these cinder block, through basically a little cinder block city in the middle of the woods and find fragments of grenades. You could find, you know, the walls were all po- pockmarked with, you know, what looked like probably nine millimeter rounds. Um, that was really interesting. Uh, also probably pretty dangerous and stupid. Um, I. There were also huge areas of Fort Ord where they were unexploded ordnance areas where they had fired artillery. And of course, some of the artillery does not go off. And one time when I was younger, I did uh, unknowingly wander into one of those areas. It was not marked. And I was wandering. I was, I was. There was an old half track kind of like hybrid tank thing out in the distance. And I was walking towards it. And it was absolutely just Swiss cheesed with, with, uh, Like you know, like gunfire, you know, like full of bullet holes, and I was walking down through this kind of down across the slope towards it, and I was kind of noticing all these fragments of things on the ground, and then I just came across a, you know, just like glisteningly perfect unexploded mortar round with a uh, uh, aluminum tail fin, and at that point I realized that I was in an unexploded ordnance zone, and that likely there were unexploded landmines, perhaps bombs, you know, mortars, you know, who knows, but it was extremely dangerous. And I remember very slowly and gingerly walking my way back out of there and and never returning. Um, now this gets to the sort of the final, the the final story in in Fort Ord, um, which is a, a, a local story that I heard one Halloween in the back of a van in Pacific Grove, Um, And I was told this by some 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 friends. It was about a kid that we had gone to school with, and he had gone to work down at the docks after he had dropped out of high school. And this was Halloween night when we're telling the story. I think there were some people passing a joint around and, you know, it was low lighting. It was spooky. And uh, I'm told this story about this kid that we used to know who had kind of disappeared, dropped out of high school and disappeared. The story was that he had gone down to the docks to work on fishing boats and um, had had didn't get along with his family and had to move out. And so he moved into uh, a place in Fort Ord with a friend of his, and they lived with their friend's dad, who was uh, something like ex-military and then um, maybe had worked in law enforcement for a while and was – but not working currently. Uh, like, I, th- I think it was like either a physical or mental health exemption that the guy was given, he like early retirement or something like that. So this guy, the, the father would sit around drinking beer all day and watching TV. And, you know, this, this, uh, this guy that I knew would go down to the, um, uh, would go down to, you know, work at the docks and then come back and hang out, you know, uh, and, and one thing they would do for recreation was the dad being ex-military, he had, night vision goggles. And he had several sets of them. And so this, this friend of mine and his friend would take the sets of night, night vision goggles and would wander out into the vastness of Fort Ord, which is, you know, one part empty city, and then also just a huge forest. And they would wander out there and they would play, you know, they would kind of play hide and go seek. And they would kind of pretend like they were in the, in the army and they were having fun. And, and uh, one night, they got separated. And, um, uh, this, this guy seeing with the clarity of night vision at night thinks that he sees his friend in the distance and he kind of keeps going and going and going. And he gets to this relatively remote area looking for his friend and he comes to a sort of cluster of trees and he sees motion inside the, 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 the cluster of trees. And he goes up to it, thinking he's going to surprise his friend. So he's sneaking up quietly, and he's peering. He comes to the edge of the of the the grove of trees, and he looks into into it, and he sees not just one person, but he sees two people. One person lying prone on the ground, and another person lying over him. And so he kind of walks around to get a better to get a better view, and he sees. Uh, all of a sudden, with startling clarity, that what's actually happening is the person on top of him is uh, is is eating parts of the person on the on the ground, and the per- the person on the ground is dead. Um, so he's witnessing an act of cannibalism in the pitch dark, in the middle of the woods in Fordord, and so he backs out of there as quiet as he can, and then he runs back to the house, runs back to the house, and his his friend is not returned. His friend's still out you know, having fun with the night vision and obviously didn't run run into this horrific scene that he had seen. And he comes in there, he's all freaked out, goes to the dad who's getting drunk, watching TV and says, listen, I just, I was wandering in the woods. I got separated from your son and, and I came across someone out there. There's someone out there eating another person in the woods. And according to how the story goes, the dad gets up without saying anything, goes into his room and comes back with a gun and hands it to this young man. And he says, you need to kill him. And so the way the story goes is that this person goes back out into the woods, finds the person eating, still eating the person, shoots him in the head and then comes back. And that's the end of the story. Now, it wasn't clear if that was true, but this is also a person who kind of disappeared. People had seen, and uh, so we, it was hard to check for veracity. I've since heard heard that he's around, still working on boats, but in a different area. But no one's been able to reach him or speak to him about it. But the person who received this story from him said that he was, he was being told the story as if... Uh, this guy who had, who had witnessed the cannibalism and, and, and shot this person, um, as if he was, uh, uh, making a confession and, and, and that he was, seemed extremely disturbed. So that's the story. That's the, the, the sort of the, the, the four door cannibals cannibalism story. Now this is after it was a, an active base, but there still are operators out there and there's still a smaller mil- military presence. Um, at this point there's a few things to say about seaside you know which is nearby it was off it was like kind of a little bedroom community for fort ord um i think the main thing that's worth pointing out about it is that it had a, a really mu- interesting music scene um it was a historically black and hispanic area but it's less so now due to gentrification a lot of people are moving in and pushing the uh the the historical residents out so there was a history of blues performances i, I it was a stop in the kind of the uh the, the juke joint circuit And I remember, you know, like fully legit blues bands performing in Seaside when I was a kid. Also, interesting gangster rap. Um, There was one group called the Sick Side Mob. That's S-I-C-C, Sick Side, like Seaside, Mob, M-O-B-B. And this sounded a lot like uh, the sort of the Sacramento raps coming out on the black market label in the 90s. Uh, Stuff like Brother Lynch hung and X-Rated, stuff that I loved when I was a teenager. I mean, it's like, very highly, highly antisocial rap music. Um, and one of my cousins ended up dating one of the members of the Six Side Mob, which was also, I think they were all involved in a Crip set, a local Crip gang uh uh, you know, group called the Six Side Mob. Um, and this this guy went by the rap name Seadale. So I mean there was a year where he came over to Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I, I really liked him. He was really funny interesting creative guy and he ended up going to prison for something pretty serious i I never saw him again um so seaside used to be a a pretty tough place and uh up on the hill on streets like mingo and luxton there was a place called the pit where supposedly you could get prostitutes and heroin there was also a lot of violence a lot of gun gunfire that you'd hear in those neighborhoods i mean i've been in those neighborhoods and heard the gunfire when i was younger. at the time, there was a Crip and Nortenio presence, and, and, then, and I think there was a war between the Crips and Nortenios. And since then, a lot of the Crips have left. But there were historically the Seaside Project Crips, the Six Side Mob, and the Darwin Street Crips. So, you know, I, I thought it was worth mentioning Seaside. I mean, it's like it was a like culturally rich, but also a troubled area and uh, also a place where at one time officers from Fort Ord used to live
0: it definitely sounds like quite a place that's for sure (laughs) yeah all right well as we head into the home stretch here we're going to consider a place that's fascinated me ever since I saw the Lost Boys when I was a lad there it's a fictional uh stand-in for what is dubbed the murder capital in the U.S For those of you unaware, I am talking about good old Santa Cruz, which did in fact have quite a murder problem uh, during the 60s, 70s, and I think going into the 80s as well. But before we get to that, Matt, do you want to give us a quick rundown of the place's history?
1: Yeah, I mean, Santa Cruz, it means Holy Cross. Um, It was founded by the Spanish in 1791. There used to be a mission there. I think it's been, it burned and was like a, it was rebuilt at some point. Um, It was incorporated as an American city in 1866. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a beach town. It's known as a surfing town. I've always found it to be a very strange place with sinister energy. Um, has a strong new age presence and a history of cult movements, especially up in the Santa Cruz mountains, back to the land, hippie types, you know, living, living in, there were a lot of communes up there. Um My friends used to go there to buy weed on Pacific street back in the nineties. And we'd see shows at the catalyst. I saw cool Keith there. I saw a bunch of other uh, great shows there. So um yeah, you know, I, I've played a lot of gigs there as an adult and I've never had uh like a I've never had a good experience there, which is weird because you, you would think it's a college town and like there's cool people who live there. Um but uh yeah, I, I get a weird vibe from Santa Cruz. There's there's things I like about it, but there's also something something strange and dark about it. And and uh I I've heard it referred to not as the murder capital, but the serial killer capital of the world. When you look into that, that's maybe not entirely accurate. I mean, there was just a few different serial killers that were operating. One, uh, significantly in, in uh, you know, who's connected uh, to people who I know, my mom's uh, dorm mate at UC Santa Cruz, Rosalind Thorpe, was killed, I think, in 1972. Um, uh, and she was picked up hitchhiking by, uh, by Edmund Kemper, who uh, killed her and... Um, uh, raped her, killed her, and cut her head off and left it in a quarry in the Santa Cruz mountains. So um, Kemper claims to have given many rides to women uh, from the Santa Cruz campus into downtown Santa Cruz before he began killing women. He said he did it about 50 times. Um, And my mom talks about before the Kemper killing happened, she would hitchhike all the time. So I have to wonder if at some point, did did my mom get a ride up or down the hill from Ed Kemper, um, uh, you know, which makes my blood run cold to think about, um, before he worked up the the you know the the fortitude to actually start killing people, um, so uh, then there's also the the, the killer Herbert Mullen, uh, who who um, ended up in California medical facility. Uh, which is a, a, like a forensic prison with Edmund Kemper later on, where a friend of mine is a psychologist and, uh, uh, you know, has, has seen both of them around, doesn't work directly with them, but, but, you know, like they're, 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 they're there, or I think maybe actually Mullen might be dead, but Edmund Kemper is still there, very old. Um, and Edmund Kemper would bully Herbert Mullen and he would say things like, you know, he's kind of an amateur. He would, he was just killing people for no good reason. So, uh, you know, Edmund Kemper is, you know, uh, you know, v- v- very I mean, slam dunk psychopathic personality. Um, so uh, there were other killings. Um, there were other ones. A number of unsolved killings in, Sa- in Santa Cruz too. Um, so another thing is uh, there's a sort of a history of stories about <clears throat> underground tunnels and dwellings in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I mean, one thing that people do. Uh, is there's a a famous cave that you can climb that that you you can spelunk into called the hell hole and it's based uh you you enter it from the uc santa cruz uh uh, campus and it involves uh corkscrew passages which are just barely enough to fit a sort of an average-sized human body through and then huge rooms that open up they keep trying to close it up but people open it up but it just sounds like uh I mean, it sounds terrifying to me the idea of getting stuck there. So, um, I also heard stories from people I know who went to UC Santa Cruz about parties and houses that have, uh, you know, big, big, extraordinarily extravagant houses that have entrances into elaborate underground passageways. You know, houses that like either belonged to a group of people, uh, like more communal or UC Santa Cruz professors. You know, I've never you know i've never validated any of that but uh you know it, it just sort of tracks there's a history of communes in the area and um also uh, uh cults too um there's a, Lo- a lockheed martin missile test site in the mountains i mentioned this before uh near bonnie dune and people have heard huge booming noises coming from within the earth nearby <clears throat> and speculate connection to the ufos you know i mean like i said before uh, you know, the Santa Cruz Mountains is where the the sort of orange orbs of light uh, uh, appear. and then they usually go down towards move down towards Watsonville. Um, another thing that my um meter reading friend uh, uh, discovered up there was a place called the Goddess Temple, um which is uh, he said it was this extraordinary building uh that you that you approach. and as you approach, there's a huge eye above the door. and inside, there are these screens with uh, so this bizarre art footage playing and um, uh, that people there are all dressed in white and that they won't acknowledge you, they won't make eye contact with you. Uh, a little bit of uh, sleuthing will show that the Goddess Temple was owned by Penny Slinger, who's an artist from England, uh, 60s and 70s. Her art had kind of a throbbing gristle, uh, coom transmissions-esque uh, feeling to it, but with a, a little bit more of a new age feminist kind of overtone, overtone to it. Uh, the goddess temple was pur- uh, purchased by her husband, Christopher Hills, who's been described as the father of spirulina. Um, so he popularized spirulina as a source of food. Um, he also wrote 30 books on consciousness, uh, meditation, yoga, spiritual evolution, divining, world government, aquaculture, personal health. I mean, if you go read Christopher Hills' uh uh, Wikipedia page it's like this incredibly bizarre charmed life where it's like you know he just does one incredible thing after another and, and, and oftentimes is moving with heads of state and industry leaders uh, but he's also very interested in consciousness and this kind of uh, kind of like um has the sort of the mouthfeel of like a, um, uh, what, what's the word what's the Barbara Marks Hubbard word uh, conscious evolution. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was an intelligence asset. I mean, that could be a whole show unto itself, you know, but I mean, I kind of looked at him and was like, Whoa, that's a, that's a lot. But so he bought the goddess temple when he died, he left it to Penny Slinger and then she sold it in 2017. You know, if you look it up, there's a uh, very strange stuff that happens there. Eco sex workshops. You can see, uh, pictures of people having sex with the earth and having sex with trees. Um, and, uh, yeah so so that's happening there but I don't think it's owned by Penny Slinger anymore she uh has since moved back to LA and she's working on producing new art and promoting uh sort of like reissues of her older art I mean Robert Anton Wilson lived nearby in either I think it was Aptos or Soquel and uh Formless Oceans group was based there so oh yeah you
0: know, Formless Oceans group I was about to point that out if you didn't right there
1: people like Terrence McKenna and Hakeem Bey were around and then also uh in that area were uh, uh, Bandler and Grinder d- uh, developed NLP. And I think that they were in some way associated with UC Santa Cruz, the college, uh, the, the university up on the hill. And you know, Bandler, who ended up being a very sinister figure, I mean, bragging while he was developing NLP that he could use NLP techniques to be acquitted of any crime, that he could murder someone and use NLP to be acquitted. And then years later, his girlfriend shows up dead with bullets that matched to his 45 caliber revolver and then he goes to trial and is acquitted um even though all evidence pointed towards uh him having committed the murder so that's another Santa Cruz thing is uh NLP came came out of Santa Cruz
0: interesting I was not aware of the NLP connection um well as we get in here to the uh, very home stretch is a little bonus do you want to maybe bring a, a touch on Carmel briefly
1: yeah, I have less stuff on Carmel, but um, but uh, but it's still a fascinating, charming little place. Um <clears throat> I think, you know, I mean, it, it had been an artist's community, lots of painters lived there. Um, you know, it's since become very like, you know, pretty shishi and boutiquey and uh, you know, exclusive. It's, it's it's extremely uh sort of expensive place to live. But the the history, I mean, it seems like at one point it must have just been an extraordinary place to live with tons of artists and it affordable you know you could you could afford a cheap board and bat shack to live in with the sound of the ocean sort of like pounding away down just down the street you know so it's it's just a beautiful place um robinson jeffers lived there and he built a couple things there he built tour house and hawk tower um for his wife una And uh, these were these structures that he built with stones that supposedly he walked into the sea and carried out with his hands. And so there's this little miniature sort of like folly tower. And um, and then there's also the house that they lived in, which are incredible. You can drive right up to them. And there's also periodic tours of them. He also um, crushed abalone shells, the mother of Pearl, and would strew it onto the walkways to make uh, the paths glow in the moonlight as they walked about their property. Um, a number of other interesting people ended up living there. Dean Stockwell, used to, I used to see him around, uh, the writer James L. Roy, who I think he wrote The Black Dahlia, maybe, um, but a bunch of other. Correct. You know, kind
0: of, yes. Yeah. He also wrote I Like Confidential as well.
1: The Confidential and of other, yeah, a bunch of other contemporary hard-boiled crime fiction and, and nonfiction. Um, you know, Bob Dylan... And Joan Baez, at a certain time, were hanging out. Joan Baez still does, but I, I knew people who hung out with Bob Dylan and Joan Baez back in the day in the Carmel Highlands. Um, and then, you know, significantly to me, someone I love and and you know really respect is Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. He ended up setting up shop here and having this be his kind of base of operations for Pacific Arts, his record label and uh you know film production company and then eventually video ranch which he had in San city which is kind of between monterey and seaside um so he was around he was part of the scene and he also um he owned the the little uh uh it was like a little art space slash i mean essentially like a punk punk uh music venue where i saw my first ever extraordinarily powerful um uh, punk rock shows i saw you know i saw Ian Svanonius perform with the makeup. I saw Dura Delinquent, bands like Starlight Desperation. I mean, those shows just absolutely uh, turned me into a new person in one night. So uh, Michael Nesmith, you know, you know, his his reach is, is long and rhizomatic. Um, and he was around. People would see him around, too. My, you know, uh, my friend read his meter, you know, uh, and would stop and chat with him. He said that he often seemed quite stoned, but, you know, delightful and in, uh, brilliant and funny. Um, uh, uh and then may brussel you know she lived actually in carmel valley which is a sort of a, a it's a, it's it's further east in, into a, so so it's it's more rural you know people have horses out there but she broadcast for years out of kazu which is based in, in pacific grove and um i mean i remember the old k it's since just become kind of like a it's based at, at csumb now on the forward campus and it's just kind of like a satellite station for NPR stuff. So it's not that interesting anymore, but it used to have all kinds of really interesting local programming. And that's where Mae Russell had her show. And I've since, I didn't have time to talk to them before I did this show, but I've met people who were more aware of her and, uh, you know, also had shows at KZU. So perhaps there's more uh, on that in the future. Last person uh, got to throw them in there. It's Clint Eastwood, former mayor of uh, uh, Carmel and, uh, you know, he's around. I mean, I saw him at my sister's wedding in the mid aughts and, um, you know, he's getting quite old at this point, but, um, you know, he's just been a fixture in that area forever and uh an interesting person.
0: Yeah. A couple of things here to add here before we sign off. Um, I was looking into this Christopher Hills guy and yeah, he has a just absolutely fascinating CV to put it mildly. Fine. Um, but yeah just a few things uh he did do some conferences here in the early 60s from what i'm seeing with adrina puharic um was a figure right. i got to do a lot of my most recent book the art but the yeah, puharic was definitely involved in artichoke and some of this other kind of uh more woo-woo stuff that the military and the cia were looking into uh, but it's especially interesting that hills apparently spent a lot of time uh in Jamaica in fact he'd even founded a political party there um again if you heard the episode that I did with Casey Gain on Jamaica we went into a lot of the deep politics at play there um and Hills really jumps out for that of course he was based out of Montego Bay uh that's a very wealthy region of Jamaica there's been a lot of celebrities who live there such as Johnny Cash Uh, But also Ian Fleming, the creator of uh, James Bond, was a resident of that particular region, in addition to spending a lot of his final years in uh, Jamaica. And then finally, uh, oh, Intrepid, gosh, what was the spy's name now off the top of my head? He ran the British uh, Security Coordination, uh, which was essentially the uh, UK's the head of the uk intelligence in north america william stevenson william stevenson there we go so he was also based out around there and i believe he would have been alive during this time as well so uh given that hills was uh british national i believe originally i think there was probably a really good chance he would have known uh, these characters around there so yeah that's uh really really uh interesting um <clears throat> and then also to to circle back to uh, your account of cannibalism here uh in the monterey area i had wanted to look this up but yes um so there was the notorious uh stanley dean baker figure uh who was arrested in 1970 uh in california the highway patrolman um had who had uh, arrested him got a confession out of him where he said something to the effect of i'm a cannibal uh he had a human finger uh on his person i believe when he was arrested so anyway he was eventually convicted of i believe two murders in 1970 he was uh, extradited back to montana but it appears that he was arrested in or around uh Solanas California i believe is how it's pronounced uh which is in Monterey county um mm-hmm. So that's interesting as well. Maybe there was uh, some other instances of cannibalism going on there besides uh, what you had encountered, Matt.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to say. And, I, and, I, and I, I think that that wilderness area to the east of Fort Ord is so vast that, you know, those bodies could have just, there's a good chance they've just never gotten found, you know, because there's just no one out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does sound like a uh, a rather well. I mean, obviously, it's California, I mean, there are a fair amount of people in there, but it doesn't seem like it's as uh, densely populated as maybe the Bay Area or LA would be.
1: Especially, you know, especially you have to think that there's a chance that this could have happened in a, in a place that's been deemed kind of a kind of a, a Superfund, you know, kind of off limits site or an unexploded ordnance site. So there's a chance that, you know, uh, I mean, I, I would not be surprised if. I mean you put a you you put a body there it's not going to get found you know i mean until the government gets around t- to cleaning up you know uh billions and billions of dollars worth of you know pollution it's like uh, when when's that going to happen
0: well matt it has been a barn burner here um did you uh, have anything else you uh, wanted to say here before we sign off
1: uh one more thing about uh, or just one thing about ketamine therapy you know um um my colleague, Dr. Mark Short, and I are providing ketamine therapy throughout the state of uh, California. Um, and we're in the process, uh, that's, that's through our entity, Ketamine Providers Network, which you can you can check us out at ketamineprovidersnetwork.com. Um, also on that site, you can find information about Los Angeles Community Ketamine Clinic. And that is where we are going to be opening a low fee, um, affordable ketamine clinic for Low-income and working people. It's going to be the world's, I believe, first ever affordable psychedelic therapy. We're going to be running that two days a month, probably the first two Wednesday days of every month, starting next year. So I think we're going to be starting early next year, but we're kind of um, we're still in the process of you know figuring a bunch of things out. It's going to be happening in Echo Park here in LA. So people who are interested in, in affordable ketamine air, uh, treatment in the uh, Los Angeles area. Check out ketamineprovidersnetwork.com. You can send a contact form, uh, do a contact form or send us an email. We'll get right back to you. Uh, we look forward to working with you with this incredible medicine.
0: And most likely, you will not be contacted by the neophytes in mad sessions, unlike uh, the experiences Mr. Timothy Ballard has had.
1: Uh, yeah. Just your, I just finished your episode on Timothy Ballard, and, and we're going to do everything within our power for that not to happen. <laughs>
0: You know, it's kind of bizarre. I was, um, I he, I had just read that book that he had written on George Washington for that episode. And He kept mm-hmm. referencing this high school in California where he had seen this mosaic that had kind of sent him on that rabbit hole. And I was looking it up, and it was actually uh, La Canada High School, uh, which mm-hmm. I believe is right next to uh, Pasadena.
1: It's uh, yeah, uh, pronounced La Canada.
0: La Canada. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yes, yeah, it's
1: just right, right over here. Yeah, I'm, I'm right by it.
0: Yeah, he actually went to the uh, Monterey Inter- Institute of International Studies as
1: well. Oh, actually, no, no, no. Uh, recluse, check it out. I think, remember when we went to Devil's Gate when you were here Yeah, in town? I think
0: we, saw, I was thinking we actually went by it. That was kind think, of crazy. I,
1: I think that's La Canyada High School. I think we were there
0: yeah no that's insane yes no guess like i said when i saw the name of that i was like it seemed vaguely familiar i had been wondering if that uh, was one of the high schools we had gone by well it's fantastic but, even before i had read the book i went by the high school with the mosaic that had i guess apparently convinced uh ballard that washington had founded the uh well had achieved independence for the united states so that eventually the lds could come into existence and eventually he could experience the neophytes on I mean, here
1: and the sinks keep coming.
0: Yes, things have become full circle here. Yeah, yeah. All right, Matt. Well, we're going to sign off there. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And as always, good night and good luck to you all.